Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation! Is that your Kevin Sorbo? Disappointed! <laughs> uh, that is great. That's that's like all-time top ten best best acting right there. <laughs> if for those of you listening, if you don't know what we're talking about, look up Kevin Sorbo and Disappointed. That's a that's a great little scene right there. And and not to go on too far of a tangent, but uh, you know, multiverses seem to be a big thing right now, and that Kevin Sorbo in Hercules was one of the early precursors to multiverses. So you got to see Kevin Sorbo playing an evil version of Hercules. And that was his way of evilly communicating how disappointed he was in his universe not being his own. So take that flashpoint and across the Spider-Verse and Multiverse of Madness and Black Science and Everything Everywhere All at Once and No Way Home and No Way Home The Flash Kang (laughs) Yeah, you heard it here Kevin Sorbo's Hercules was the granddaddy of them all so if you're a true fan of comics, you need to watch Kevin Sorbo's <laughs> Hercules, Legend of Hercules. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Drew, and with us is our other co-host. This is Albert. Meow, 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 meow. Today, we are continuing our read-through of Deadly Class. This month, we're covering Volume 6, which is titled, This Is Not The End. As usual, Deadly Class is co-created by writer Rick Remender and artist Wes Craig, colored by Jordan Boyd. Lettered and logo designed by Russ Wooten and edited by Sebastian Gerner. We're covering. What's that? Oh, Oh, we got to do the thing for Russ Wooten. (laughs) When you said Russ Wooten, I went, woot, woot. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my new thing. In addition to ain't no clown like the Wooton clown. (laughs) (laughs) Woot, woot. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, All right, we're talking about Volume 6 today, which comprises issues 27 to 31. The trade paperback edition was originally released in December of 2017. So, as usual, we will do our issue-by-issue summaries and offer commentary as we go through the volume. Any other things you want to add to our preamble, Albert? I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little precaution at the at the head of this episode. I feel like this always needs to be said, but I'm gonna say it this time anyways. 
but what I was going to say was I wanted to be completely transparent and to be completely and utterly known to those who are listening that when I do these notes for our summaries, I am doing them with the ferocity of a chipmunk on meth. So (laughs) a lot of my notes, when I tend to read them after the fact, they are almost illegible to me. So there will be times where I will pause because I'm not entirely sure what I was saying in the moment that I was writing it, but I'd like to think that that's just part of the fun. Do you normally have trouble reading your own handwriting? Not normally, but when I do these, I'm I'm just trying to jot down my ideas as quickly as possible. So it's not a matter of quality, at least not when it concerns, you know, the legibility of what I'm writing, but the content is mad gold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you ever yeah. considered typing your notes out? Well, that's the thing. I have like a bunch of loose papers and notebooks around, and i I've made it a I've made a conscious decision uh, in in recent months that I need to use these notepads because I wouldn't feel bad about just throwing them out without using them. But I have no other reason to use them otherwise. Oh, so, okay. I've just committed myself to writing everything with pen on paper. Plus, it makes me feel like a literati of some sort. <laughs> I'm thinking Fair of enough. getting a giant feather quill pen and going to Starbucks and writing with that and a little one of those little ink 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 wells that I can dip it in. You know, really make everybody around me come uncomfortable. That would be pretty classy. It'd be classy, but I'd like to think that as I'm writing my notes, when I'm stopping to take a pause, I can tickle myself with the end of the feather and like, you know, mumble and and chortle to myself, you know, really make everybody around me super uncomfortable. Who's around you? Eh, whoever's at Starbucks. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, people. I feel like living in the city, people are kind of accustomed to other people talking to themselves or chortling to themselves. That's true. You've just convinced me that I just have to make more of an effort to really stand out. Yeah, if you really want to make people uncomfortable, you have to cross boundaries and enter into their personal space. That's true. Perhaps I can use my ink quill pen to try to tickle someone's butthole. That would be quite uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, but they'll remember me. They will. They won't be able to ignore you then. Yeah. They will have exactly. to acknowledge you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, it's that guy who tickles people's buttholes with feathers. <laughs> I feel like that's something that you could only do once before the police take you away. Probably. There's definitely a limitation on how many of those you can get away with. I'd be shocked if it was more than two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, shall we begin? (laughs) Let's begin. All right. 
So I'm going to begin with issue 27. Sayo awakens from her wounds. She's being tended to by her mother in a, and in a state of delirium, she recalls memories of her past. As a descendant of two samurai clans, Saya has the pedigree and the acumen to become a great Yakuza, but her father's reluctance and desire to shield her from the harshness of their business stands in her way. Her brother Kenji, on the other hand, is entitled, petty, jealous, and ill-tempered. And yet, despite these failings and the fact that his family sees him as a source of shame, he is allowed to participate by virtue of his gender. Kenji comes to them with a plan to sell drugs, but is shut down for considering but is shut down for considering such a thing. Kenji leaves with a sour taste in his mouth. In an alley, Saya offers Kenji a plan that will make him money. All she asks in return is that he vouch for her. Kenji responds with contempt, leaving her high and dry. At a nightclub, Kenji tries to befriend Akio, another successful local hood, but he responds with mockery, making fun of him for how broke he is. When Saya comes in, when suddenly Saya comes in, flashing fat stacks of cash, it turns out she's been running a gambling ring at her elite school, fleecing all of the rich kids who attend. Kenji loses it at the at the at the disrespect, while Akio and his crew respect her moxie and initiate her with her own full back tattoo. Later that night, Saya returns home, stumbling upon the murdered body of her father's associate, Mr. Ito. The blame for this high-profile death will be laid at her feet and the feet of the Kuroki family. In the heat of the, in the, heat of the moment, Saya runs off into the night with the family's katana. At a meeting of Yakuza leaders, they discuss the murder and demand rest uh, and demand restitution. Saya shows up, having severed two of her fingers in a gesture to prove her innocence, but it it is insufficient. And the Ito family demands more. Saya pleads with her father, trying to convince him that she didn't do it. He responds, indicating that he knows Ken that he knows Kenji did it, and gives Saya one last kiss before committing seppuku. Kenji is offered his father's seat before Saya makes a run for it, taking the family katana with her. Afterwards, Saya would move, would move on to King's Dominion in an attempt to restore her family's honor. Here's a question. But sure, sure. Prior to this issue, did you notice that Saya was missing a couple of her fingers? I did not. That is not something that had occurred to me or had crossed my mind. So maybe it's a thing where I got to go back, you know, to earlier volumes to see if that is indeed the case. Yeah, same here. I did not. That was a detail I did not recognize at all or did not notice at all in the previous volumes. So I feel like if I opened them up now, I'll be looking for it just to see her hands because it's uh, the sort of it's the sort of thing where when you do world building or lore building or whatever uh when you're telling a story especially one as long 
platform as Deadly Class with as many issues as Deadly Class, you would have thought they would have committed like one scene where you get a close-up of her hand or something to, you know, drop clues to us, the readers, that, oh, there's something that happened to her. I wonder what, you know? But mm-hmm. I don't remember a scene like that at all. So when when this scene shows up, uh, when she shows up to the Yakuza meeting and throws those two fingers down, it's like, oh, man, I must not have ever noticed um, yeah. that she was missing those two fingers. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that, I must not or, be alert. <laughs> yeah. Either that or she could have just chopped off two random fingers from some random stranger and thrown it to them and been like, yeah, man, we cool. <laughs> but then there's that one panel where she's holding the sword and you clearly see that she cut off two of her fingers on her right hand. You can fake that with special effects. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a heck of a where, way to explain. Where is your sense it. of childish wonder? <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you go back to look in previous volumes to see if that was in fact the case? No, I haven't gone back and looked, but maybe I'll go do that later on. I guess I could now because I did receive my three volumes of Deadly Class, uh, the deluxe editions. I think that's what they're called. From Yeah, the hardcovers. Uh, cheap, Meanwhile, I've still been reading novels. the digital editions. Yeah, but... I have them on hand now. I could go back and check them out and confirm whether that is the case or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did anything else strike you about this issue? Uh, I guess just the broader strokes of where this issue fits into the wider story. We finally uh-huh. get a detailed origin story for Saya. I feel yeah. like for a long time she was a pretty mysterious character and then in the last one or two trades it feels like we started to get little hints of of her backstory when we learned about her brother and how her brother is involved in in her activities and like coming after her basically so like we would get these little hints but it wasn't until this issue where we finally got a full on origin story yeah. And we also learned that she survived the cliffhanger from the previous volume when she was fallen into the swimming pool from that building. Yeah. So I, was, I mean, her origin was going to be that she was bitten by a radioactive ninja. That would have been a heck of an origin story. Yeah. And then, you know, her standing over her uncle, Uncle Ken going, why? <laughs> Not Uncle Ben, Uncle Ken, because she's Asian. Right, right. <laughs> Man, can that you, I don't know. For some reason, there's been this dog howling in my neighborhood for the past, like, 20 minutes. And I closed my windows, but I can still hear him through my headphones. So I'm not sure if the mic is going to pick that up. I I don't hear anything. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that dog just sounds extremely forlorn. It sounds like... His owners left him at the house when he really wanted to go with them somewhere. <laughs> That's sad. I mean, yeah, he is just howling like a wolf howling at the moon or something right now. Poor guy. 
I mean, guy or girl, like if if that dog was smaller, their its owners could probably just sneak him into everything and everywhere. Yeah, the but, way that you sneak Pepper everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's been to so many restaurants and movies with me. <laughs> uh, is he still going at it? He's still going at it. Ah, he's that's rough. He has just been howling. In his mind, he's uh, they're never coming back for him, and he never knows <laughs> when he's gonna see them again. Yeah. Poor guy. I did think that. Uh huh. I was gonna say. There were a couple of things about this that I don't know if I necessarily liked it or hated it, but there were things that I couldn't help but notice about it. So one of the things that jumped out at me was this idea that I think they could have very easily made this one of those stories where the dad, Saya's father, is you know just kind of this sexist pig who who's like no you are a woman you cannot be in the yakuza okay I, that's racist i'm sorry <laughs> why you gotta do the voice <laughs> i'm just playing a part man i'm just playing a part <laughs> i i the 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 very second i it came out of my mouth i knew this was wrong so i just <laughs> i couldn't do it anymore <laughs> i tried to commit to it i couldn't <laughs> But yeah, it could have been this very like typical sort of sexist dynamic that we've seen a whole bunch of times. But if anything, it I mean, I think it still acknowledges that there's a degree of sexism that exists in their business. But at the same time, he he looks at her and he knows that she's smart enough and talented enough to do the job but it's just you know and this might be weird to say but he as a loving father he doesn't want to involve her in this business uh, you know so it's it, it's not that it's not a thing where oh i can't let you be a gangster because you're just a girl with cooties <laughs> Or whatever, right? Like it's it's because it's a genuine thing where there's even a scene where Kenji comes in and you know he's he's basically if you've ever seen Godfather or something he's like Fredo, like just the loser son out of the three sons, but because he's a boy, um, he he gets to do the job just by the just because, right? Mm-hmm. But there's this scene where. I think Kenji is walking out and he overhears them talking and they say something to the effect of, you know, Saya is the son that he always wanted. I, I You know what? I think he might've actually said it to him in one scene. Uh, yeah. Because, because Kenji was talking about how he wants to start dealing drugs and how, you know, the, the Yakuza, and and that's the other thing I was going to mention. The other weird thing about this issue is, so Kenji comes to him and he he wants to talk about, oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start selling drugs, you know, and their father is like, no, we're honorable gangsters. We're not gonna sell drugs because drugs are bad for the community. I I thought that was kind of weird, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, there's 
I guess it goes with that whole conversation a little bit earlier on in this same scene where he's explaining, he's talking to Saya about the situation and, and, you know, for the sake of the reader, I would say gives a little bit of history lesson and some exposition as to the history of their Yakuza clan. And he talks about how they, they've been around for, you know, centuries basically. And they care about the people just like the samurai did. And they protect the citizens of the neighborhood. So there, there's something like definitely twisted about that point of view. I don't know if that's really what a Yakuza member would think. Or if that's like some common uh, Yakuza trope. I don't think I read enough Yakuza stories to know about the history of them and stuff like that. I, th- but I would does... believe that there is a romanticized, idealized version of what, and, mm-hmm. and this is certainly falls in line with that, because um, I'm not an expert on it, but I do know that there's some thread between Yakuza and Samurai, where okay. uh, when, you know, when that entire system was being broken down, a lot of Samurai would become you know didn't know what to do with themselves when as as the japanese uh as the japanese system was moving away from from having samurai as they were you know becoming more westernized you know in the early like 1900s or whatever but uh they were saying that a lot of these ronin uh samurai would eventually become gangsters because they didn't know what to do. They had all these skills for war and combat, but they didn't know what to do with it in this new world. And there, there is this like mythology that exists. And, and like you, I don't know how true that is. It's just a thing that I've heard, but um, yeah, but it's just one of those concepts where, it's just funny to me because, like, over here, they're apparently they've got no problem with like the countless lives they've ruined with prostitution or gambling, but drugs is the hard line that they're gonna <laughs> draw in the sand, you yeah. know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, we've ruined families with debt and we've like ruined countless young women's lives with prostitution, but you know. Don't forget all the Gives, people that we've killed. Yeah, not let's not forget the people we've killed exactly. But drugs. Ooh. We don't want to no. pollute our community with that filth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a uh, it's I mean for the sake of the comic, I it's it's a thing that I can ignore. Um but I I can't I still can't help but feel like that's kind of silly, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you're going to be a real criminal, you might as well be a real criminal. Yeah. But I do think that they wanted to play against expectations and types because, again, um, Sai's father is the head of this Yakuza family, and he could very, very easily have been written as this completely heartless bastard you know, who didn't care about his community, who didn't care about his daughter and all that stuff. But if anything, this guy just happens to be 
a pretty decent, supportive, and loving dad. Who, yeah, I don't think know, he really is, needed to be a misogynist because we already have Kenji for that contrast. Yeah, yeah, right? So it's just, yeah, he, he it just felt like Rick Remender really wanted to, to do a, he just wanted to subvert our expectations and just give us, yeah, this, we can have a decently good Yakuza who's not all that bad and, you know, relatively speaking, a good dad and a good member of the community, <laughs> you know? <laughs> he wants to He's protect really his try- community from drugs. He dotes yeah. on his daughter. He doesn't yeah. want her to swim with the sharks the way that he has yeah. to. It, it's It's a real tough threading of that needle, but if you just ignore the logic of it and and for the sake of the story you you can kind of buy into it i mm-hmm. guess like i i have a hard time believing that out there somewhere there's a real gangster who exists like this um <laughs> i don't know if anything i believe that there are gangsters out there who go around building up the mythology of who they are by either doing uh, either telling people um you know about how great they are or doing uh like not performances but you know well i guess performance would be a good word right where where you just have these grand acts to show like see look how great i am for the community or whatever like it makes (laughs) me think of uh uh not well, it might have been El Chapo. If not El Chapo, it would might have been uh, I forget what what's his name. One of the one of the drug lords, where they talk about how one of the reasons why the community ends up helping um, these drug lords is because they take all this money that they get from selling drugs and they actually put it into the community. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard that, Drew? Uh, maybe in fiction, but I don't know if I've ever read any news articles about real life drug lords no, doing this, stuff like that. This is a real thing, like in uh, like South America and Latin America. They, they, in order to get the goodwill of the people of their community, they'll like build soccer stadiums and stuff, and you know, build schools all with like drug money. Yeah, it's, I mean, I believe it. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's so weird. But so maybe that being the case, maybe that sort of weird dichotomy can exist. Uh, who knows? Yeah, it's something that definitely makes sense for Deadly Class. It fits in the mold of the world that they've established so far. Yeah, yeah. There's just some kind of degrees of gray in the underworld and the characters you know there's all these characters who definitely do awful things but occasionally surprise you with the i guess good acts that they're capable of doing mm-hmm. usually it's not really enough to fully endear you to the character but it does make the characters feel more complicated or at least three-dimensional 
I also wanted to note that I'm looking at your notes here and I like that you wrote Kenji was always a hater because she was better than him. <laughs> <laughs> I did write that. <laughs> I miss using that term, but we got to bring that back. We got to go, go back to a point in our lives where we call people haters. <laughs> we got to make that popular. <laughs> bring it back. <laughs> That's a word that I just thought was... He was a hater, story. though. He is, man. He was totally a hater. <laughs> <laughs> like, everything in this flashback story, in this origin story for Saya, the way that he carries himself, the way he talks to his father, the way he just kind of whines and complains to, to people, the way he acts around the other gangsters in the nightclub. Like, yeah. And then the way, he, the way he endures all that stuff or the way he talks to all those people despite the way that they, uh, you know, don't want him around. And then for him to see Saya kind of get welcomed into the nightclub with open arms, and he's just, like, aghast at how much money she has and how much uh, the Respect people are willing to tolerate her. It just makes him yeah. look weak and feckless, so all he can really do is be a hater, you know? And that, that's, exactly. like, the most weak-willed, possible way of retaliation that he can have because there's nothing else he can do other than just to kind of sneer and make some uh, snide comments and then storm off in a huff. And he commits an act of treachery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frames her he's, for murder later on. Yeah. He's uh he's not just a hater. He's he's got small hands. He's got no <laughs> heart. He's an absolute scrub. He's a no bona fide scrub. He's a bona fide scrub. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect, but <laughs> he doesn't have a post move that he commits to memory that he can do more than two times in a row. <laughs> oh man! All right, you want anything else, or are you good to move to the next chapter? I guess one more question that I would ask you is. If you had any thoughts about the coloring in this issue, because I thought the way that they colored the that Jordan Boyd colored the flashback scenes was pretty interesting. It's pretty cool. It's like a really it's a mix between pastel and neon because it's muted, but at the same time, they're all kind of bold colors too. It's like the it goes from pink to purple when they're in the alley when it's just saya and kenji and mm -hmm. then when they're in the nightclub it's there's this like bluish hue filter that's applied to it which looks pretty cool i did like that scene quite a bit yeah um and then once you move to her getting her tattoo it becomes it's filtered through this this like pastel green again uh and it isn't until we get to the point where she is with all the Yakuza heads and they're trying to talk about restitution where the filters are all gone and they're just kind of back to like the really vivid just I guess I don't I don't really know how to how to describe it but normal 
uh, the normal world, the unfiltered world, the world that doesn't have a filter on it. The interesting thing I thought about that specific scene at the end of the flashback where she meets the other Yakuza members is that the colors, yeah, there's, there isn't a filter like in the previous scenes that you described, but there was still something about the way that those pages were colored that makes them different from the first page and the last page. Cause like the, you know, the first and last page of the issue are kind of the framing story where she's actually in the present day, you know, it's November of 1988 and she's lying in bed, uh, talking to her mother. And like those pages have what I would consider like the baseline standard coloring for this series. And then like, this Yakuza scene at the very end when she throws down her fingers and, and then starts the fight, there's a, I don't know. I, it, it feels like for whatever reason, it seems like uh, Wes Craig decided to mostly forego all of the backgrounds. Like there's a table and there's a couple of chairs to establish the setting if they're in some kind of office. But then like all of the colors or just in the backgrounds of the panels, you know, like you don't really have any mm. other specific details and the focus is purely on the people and everything that's going on. So when her father yeah. commits suicide, it's like this big moment that really pops out on the page. And then the fight starts when she grabs the sword and starts cutting people and stuff. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's any kind of a, meaning behind it behind the coloring or anything but i just thought that those last few pages of the flashback looked pretty interesting from a visual standpoint just because of the focus on the figures it's real like yeah, simplified very yeah very simplified like the colors are are just flat colors they're not gradients or anything like there's one panel that has like two different shades of blue but they're done in this geometric style to indicate like almost a light in the middle of the room. But yeah, for the most part, it, it just seems like there's an intentional disregard for the background, which is a lot different from other comics where sometimes you'll read something and there's no background in the drawings. And you can tell that the guy was just being lazy or didn't have time to draw the backgrounds. But for some reason, like reading this, it just feels purposeful, you know, like there's a I, I think there's just something hard to describe about the quality of the visual storytelling here that makes you believe that Wes Craig intentionally foregoed the backgrounds because he wanted you to focus on the people. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. I, I don't know. If, this is a fitting term, but it, it feels like it's like an art house movie thing, movie style, right? Where you just fade everything else into the background uh, and just focused on the figures. Mm -hmm. um, like the, the one scene that really is interesting to me is it's the scene where Saya's dad is talking to her and she's, you know, begging him to like understand that she's not the one that killed Mr. Ito. And he's just like, I know, but one of my children did. And he gives her a kiss on the head. He walks back over with his katana. And then you just watch like a close up. 
you see him in profile, and then uh, you see a close-up of his face in profile, and then on the next page in this completely different color scheme, like this really weird, dull chocolate brown, you just see, it's like so much negative empty space and you just see him driving his sword straight through his own chest. It's a, it's a pretty stark contrast from the previous page, like especially if you're looking at the color schemes as, as you move from panel to panel and then going from this like light green to a darker shade of green and then pink when he kisses her on the head and then back it's very to green. tender yeah it's yeah it's a very warm sort of pink right maybe peach i don't know how you would describe it but then everything goes back to green and then the second that he drives the blade through his chest everything turns into this like weird chocolate brown yeah like, that's then... not a color i would associate for any kind of use ever because it's quite frankly not a very appealing co color quite frankly it looks like poop <laughs> yeah yeah it's i think it's definitely meant to invoke a sense of discomfort because it's such a horrifying moment and then also like after he stabs himself through the chest with his blade the next few panels the background color gradually reverts back to the uh, greenish blue that it was previously mm -hmm. but yeah like all this stuff is some pretty fascinating coloring because it it's like really moody it's not really predicated on realism it's just there to make you feel something in in the story you know like the coloring aids and abets the storytelling yeah yeah i feel like and I also want we don't always we don't often see stuff like that in comics usually people tend to color stuff realistically yeah but a book like this where they usually go for the moodiness of it and the impressions of it that's uh it's fun to look at yeah i also wanted to make one other note which is so after the scene where he kills himself uh and you see all that brown in the following scenes whenever there's any blood it's all colored in that same hue of brown so in the panel below it, when um, when Akio pulls the blade from her father's chest, you see a spurt, spurt of the brown blood. Mm -hmm. And then the panel below that, when you look at uh, Saya's hands where she's cut off her fingers, there's like some drippings of the brown blood as well. And in the following page, she, she steals the blade from Akio uh the katana from akio and she's just like swinging around swinging it around in like this mad slashing just just to try to get people away from her and anytime she cuts anybody you just see this brown stuff just coming out i thought that was a nice touch mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely mm. i'm curious to see what they'll do with her mother now that we've met her mother in this issue also yeah i'm uh i'm a little confused or or uncertain of what her stance is because there are times where she seems to be loving and motherly towards saya and other times where I get the sense that there's something menacing beneath the surface too. 
So I'm not entirely sure which side of the fence she's on, you know? Yeah, same here. I don't here. know if you get that same... Okay, well, there we go. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's what makes her intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. You, move, you ready to move on to issue 28? Let's check it out. All right. In Puerto Pen- Penasco, Penasco? Puerto Penasco, Mexico, Marcus has a conversation with Willie about music. Before about music before turning to his plans to exact ret- retribution on King's Dominion and Master Win Lynn. Willie tries to convince Marcus that it's a bad idea. He has a good life now, living in peace with Maria, and he should forget. He shouldn't forget it all. When Mark, when Maria shows up, we realize that Marcus's entire conversation was all in his head. Marcus can't help but brood, but Maria just wants to live in the moment and for them to appreciate the fact that they're both alive together and not being violently tortured. At King's Dominion, Quan has a secret phone call with Kenji, who blackmails him into conducting a campaign to ruin and discredit Saya. Meanwhile, Helmet and Tashawi pull Quan aside. Something doesn't sit right with him about, about the night of Saya's disappearance, and he wants to go over the details again. The conversation becomes heated as accusations get thrown around, but before things get too serious, the three are called into Master Lin's office. He too wants to know what happened to Saya, but the three maintain their ignorance. They, they are dismissed. But Master Lin is wary of them. Meanwhile, we catch up with the sophomore student body. They are the most popular kids at school, but it's all insincere. The other students act friendly towards them, but everyone has ulterior motives. The kids that understand how things really work speak directly to Grogda, not without Shabnam's notice. Although not without Shabnam's notice, at the shooting range, Shabnam rants about the idiocy of the X-Men Inferno event, but Stefan berates him for his obsession with trivialities. This pushes Shabnam over the edge, and he becomes unhinged, threatening Stefan with violence. But before he loses it, Victor interjects. He has killed Saya and is no longer happy with their arrangement and wants to be in charge of the group. They hold a vote with Polly and Stefan voting with Victor, and Brandy and Grogda voting with Shabnam. Petra proceeds to cast to cast her vote uh, uh, to cast her vote when the student body reveals that they long ago stripped her of her voting powers because they doubted her mental stability. Petra lashes out and attacks Brandy before running off. Quan investigates Saya's room and finds her journal and discovers her secret, that on the night of the freshman hunt, she severely wounded Marcus, but spared his life with the use of poisons that simulated death. She would later revive him and sneak him out of the school, making him promise promise to see Maria and to never return to King's Dominion. Juan has found what he needed. Back in Japan, 
Saya is awakened by her mother, who tries to help her escape. But they are caught by Kenji, who attacks them and seemingly kills her mother. All right. So I think in our previous episode, we were talking about how we saw Marcus was actually alive at the end of volume five. And we were wondering uh, how he could have survived what happened to him in volume four. And I think we agreed that we would need some kind of explanation as to how he survived and that nanites, time travel, or clones <laughs> wouldn't suffice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we know what what the limits of their universe are. Uh, you know, they've established rules. So to whatever degree that they can bend reality within the parameters that they've established, they've done it, right? So mm -hmm. the explanation that it, it's a very, it's a very uh, almost Shakespearean plot device where she stabs him through the chest, but she purposely misses all of his vital organs. And at the same time, she also applied a poison to him that would make it look like he died and that was the explanation it's uh not the greatest explanation but you know what i'm enjoying the ride enough where i can ignore it and like i said it really feels very much like a shakespearean plot device like something out of romeo and juliet or something like that you know <laughs> <laughs> it feels like if you've read enough of his plays he's constantly just poisoning people with poisons that don't quite kill them but just makes them look dead yeah it's also yeah. something i feel like we've seen in batman comics or gi joe comics and things like that yeah yeah it's the only thing that you can really do to have someone die but not die I mean, yeah. personally, I'm a bigger fan of instances where there's an explosion and someone seemingly dies in the explosion, but, you know, they come up with some way to circumvent that. Like jumping like, into a refrigerator at the last moment? Like that works if it's not a nuclear bomb. It's just a regular <laughs> bomb. <laughs> If it's a nuclear bomb, then that fridge isn't going to do anything. <laughs> but back in like the 50s, didn't they make those refrigerators with lead to protect from radioactive explosions? Maybe. But if that's the case, then everybody was getting lead poisoning because it was directly <laughs> surrounding their food. <laughs> Which is a whole different problem, but sure. Out of all uh, the things that I could remember about that fourth Indiana Jones movie, for some reason, that refrigerator thing is the only thing I actually do remember. That would be... I didn't watch that fourth one, but that would be the sort of thing that would... I'd find that insulting. <laughs> I don't know how you felt, but hearing that from you, I felt insulted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best, but... Here we are in the summer of 2023, 
and another Indiana Jones movie is on the horizon, and I'm probably going to watch it in the theater anyway, because I'm a sucker yeah. like that. What if that fourth Indiana Jones was not canon, and this one just treats it like none of that stuff happened? Or what if he just wakes up and he's like, oh, that was a heck of a dream? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought that jumping into a refrigerator would save you from a nuclear explosion? That was silly. Of course it's a dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What'd you think of her stabbing him through the chest and missing all of his vital organs and also poisoning him? I think we <laughs> did bring that one up as a possibility in our last episode. Maybe not the part about poisoning him to slow yeah, down his yeah. heart rate or whatever, but I think you mentioned how you could find it plausible within the context of this story that she would stab him and intentionally miss all of his vitals yeah so yeah that isn't that was the only way shocking. that any of that made sense yeah yeah i mean with all the things that they had already established within the series and the way that that scene played out in volume four it feels like that was the only real way that they could reasonably explain how marcus survived all that because Anything else would have just like this is already pushing the limits of credibility. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think in a comic book world, it, well, this specific comic book world where things are kind of a little bit crazy, but still grounded to some extent, I guess this is acceptable. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I feel like the harder they try, if if they tried too hard to come up with some sort of explanation, the the harder you try to come up with something, the more ridiculous it's just going to look. Mm -hmm. Like, unless someone is just incredibly creative and they're able to come up with some sort of explanation that doesn't seem silly. Um I think Rick Remender in this instance did the right thing. He he did the thing that was the most sensible thing that he could do, um, you know, after writing himself into a pretty big corner. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If if he had done if if he had come up with some other reason for it where you know, oh, it was actually a body double of somebody that just happened to look like him and they traded places and she killed the wrong guy or something. <laughs> you can even see with me just trying to describe it, the more <laughs> details that I'm putting into it, the stupider it gets. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I would be incredible so, to set that. Yeah. So he, he, he did, he kept it as simple as possible, which is all you can really do under these circumstances. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, Going back to the beginning of the issue, there's a scene with Marcus chilling on the beach in Mexico, and he's got his boombox next to him with a fat pile of cassettes and many recognizable famous albums from that time period. And as he puts one in, he uh, I think it's The Cure that he puts in, he starts talking to Willie. And when I saw Willie on the second page, I was like, Okay, this has got to be a dream, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was I think like, it's Willie looked way more dead than Marcus in that in volume 4. 
So yeah. when they had their conversation, I was like, man, how how are they going to explain how he survived all that? But then it turned out <laughs> yeah, to right. be a dream after yeah. all. So it's like, okay. Or I'll accept a that. crazy person hallucination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the drugs. Yeah, yeah. The drugs in tandem with his just fracturing mental state and trauma. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can still communicate with his dead buddy. Yeah, but that was a good scene, just because it's it gives you a peek inside Marcus's head, because for all intents and purposes, they are living a pretty happy life. They've gotten away from King's Dominion. He gets to be with the girl that he loves or likes a lot, whatever. And they're just relaxing on a beach. I mean, you know, they're teenagers. Who knows what what (laughs) it is, right? But, um, you know, they are, from the looks of it, free and clear. But he still has this conversation with Willie in the back of his mind. And it's a, a very revealing conversation because he is basically telling him that he still thinks about getting revenge on King's Dominion. He still thinks about getting revenge on Master Lin and he just can't let it go. Can't blame him for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, going after them, would just put him in even more danger. And when it seems like he's already got it pretty decent chilling on that beach. Exactly. And heck, when they were trying to get away on the night of the freshman hunt, their entire goal was to just leave the school and to get away. And they have that. Uh, I guess it just goes back to a point to the fact that Marcus is, you know, the, the, the engineer of his own <laughs> demise to some degree, but it, it's complex. I mean, I get it. I, if something as traumatic as that, happened it'd be hard to let go of that and not feel like you wanted your pound of flesh right so yeah exactly you can't let go and i guess it goes back to the themes of the consequences of violence and the choices that we make that seem to be so prevalent in a lot of reminder's works yeah because yeah marcus if he had just let things go and stayed away forever just lived out his days in Mexico with Maria. We wouldn't really have much of a story. Yeah. You know, they they would literally be off in the sunset right now. But then all the stuff that happens, you know, he definitely can't let go of what happened to his friends and what the school did to him. So he's got a lot of, I guess, unbridled rage or anger in his heart. Right, and right. there's going to be some kind of day of reckoning and either they're going to kill him or he's going to kill them. And right now it just feels like him trying to kill them is a hopeless cause because I mean, he's just a kid and he's, it's just him and Maria right now. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't really seem like there's much they can do. It's hard to conceive of what kind of plan they could develop to get their revenge. Because, like, logically speaking, you would say, hey, man, you already escaped from that place. You might as well just 
live out you your days out, here. Man. You lucked out. You won exactly. the lottery. You you get to be with the girl that you, you know, that you're attracted to, that you have these strong feelings for. Why don't you just uh, quit while you're ahead, man? Exactly. Going back but, into that world just makes him, puts him into danger again. If, yeah. And not just him, but everything that he was working towards mm-hmm. is at risk at that point. Maria mm-hmm. is at risk. Their peace of mind is at risk. So why? What for? <laughs> Revenge. That's why. Yep. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah. That's the reason why <laughs> we wake up every day, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, Billy from third grade, I want you to know I'm still thinking of you and I'm I'm waiting for that day. You you don't you're not gonna see it coming, but one of these days, I'm going to be there waiting for you. I'm going to kick down your door. Billy from third grade, if he listens to this podcast, he's going to be ready for you. Then I'm just going to have to be sure that he doesn't listen to this podcast. I'm confident that he's not going to listen to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, man. I... uh. I wanted to talk about Quan a little bit in this issue. So we know from the previous volumes that Quan is the traitor. Yeah. He's the traitor. But we get a little more of uh uh we get a little bit of insight into that here, uh where we learn that he's still in communication with Kenji and Kenji's not really letting him go. He's still using him to you know, as a puppet to carry out his his plans. And I guess I'm kind of curious as to how you view Quan with, you know, the the new details that have been added in this issue. Uh, just kind of feels like the more we learn about Quan, the more, I guess, despicable he becomes in my mind. Despicable. 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 <laughs> Where did that come from? You know, D E S P I C able. Okay. Despicable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Debris. Despicable. Yeah. I find this utterly despicable. <laughs> uh. Like on some level, it's kind of understandable that if somebody's blackmailing him, he's kind of got no choice but to sort of do their bidding, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But there's still a part of me that just can't respect a traitor. He does does give off big rat fink vibes and energy in these scenes. And this the greaser haircut and style don't help this, uh, you know, dispel that those vibes. Yeah, I think initially when when we were first introduced to him, I thought it was it was a quirky kind of cool sort of thing. But the more you get to know him, and the more the the more you see him act, the he is I don't greasy. Know, those, yeah, there's something about it that just conforms to those qualities in his character. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, like it, it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't know if the 
the character, the quality of his character is what makes those attributes, those physical attributes seem more slimy or whether those attributes of his physical characteristics just make his personal character just seem that much greasier and gross. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of those things where I can't help but see I can kind of see both sides, you know, but I still don't think highly of his character, you know? Like it Yeah. Like I'm pretty curious well, as to like what exactly they've got over on him. Exactly, but, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, on some level he he's still responsible for his own choices too, you know? Yeah, yeah. It it definitely adds more layers of complexity to the situation because i don't know about you but when he stabs saya in in the previous volume what what the impression that you get or at least that i get by the by the end of that issue was that oh he's doing this because he's trying to get in good with these people he's doing it as a means of seeking power and getting access to these bigwig yakuza guys, right? Right, just selfish reasons. Well, I mean, it's still selfish here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but they introduce this other element of it, which is, well, maybe he's not quite doing it for the the power that he's trying to get. There's there's something that they are forcing him to do something that they are holding over his head yeah um, so it, it's not completely selfish in the sense that he's gaining he didn't betray something. them purely for his own greed but yeah. he betrayed them because there's a sense of self-preservation as they've got something over him absolutely yeah absolutely i don't know if it's that much better it probably isn't that much better but at least it's more understandable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. gives him some room for a redemption arc, I would say. Okay, okay. I'm because... a for redemption arcs. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because sometimes when you have these characters who seem like they're traitors, and then you find out later on that the only reason or the main reason why they were a traitor was because the real bad guys had their family hostage or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then you can yeah. kind of understand why they did what they did. So yeah, there yeah. could be a point in the future when their family is rescued from being hostages and set free. And then they can just be who they are naturally. And perhaps yeah. then they will have a chance to redeem themselves. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And it I I do think it makes for more compelling characters because otherwise he's just a one-dimensional rat fink sort of villain. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise yeah. he's just Polly, you know? Mhm. Um you remember Polly, the the red shirt guy? <laughs> yep. Yeah. He shows up in this issue or in this volume as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think he is in this issue when they're at the gun range, right? He is, because he's one of the 
he's part of the student body. He's he's in the upper echelons of the school uh, social structure, making decisions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that dog then, is still howling, man. I can't believe it. It's been over an hour. <laughs> well, when dogs are sad like that, they're just there's no sense of time. Like they're it's always the present for dogs. So yeah. you know, that that sounds like the worst kind of hell though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But then there's the scene where Helmet pulls him aside and he's just not it none of this sits right with him and he's just talking to to Shaoi and Quan and just trying to figure it out. And I think that's a scene that just continues to build Helmet in my mind as a dude I kinda like, you know? Yeah, same here. I also noticed a little detail in the dialogue here because I think last issue or last volume when we were talking about it. Um, one of my questions was, where does that whole fight scene happen at the end when they're when they're uh you know the last issue or second to the last issue of volume five when the freshmen and Saya are under attack from those ninjas and we weren't exactly sure where in the city that took place, uh-huh. but then uh in in this one it seems like that they were in Japantown when that happened. Because okay. there's a piece of dialogue here when the three of when Helmut, uh, Tosawi, and Quan are in the graveyard or whatever that area is, and they're talking. Uh, Quan says, They threw her off rooftop. I barely got out. And then Helmut says, How did Sai know we'd be in Japantown? So I guess they were in Japantown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That didn't really look like Japantown. It didn't, but we we talked about this in the previous volumes where the way that they draw the city, it just looks like any other city, but at the same time, there's still things about it that do kind of remind you of San Francisco. Yeah. And and I'm fine with that. It's it's it doesn't have to be like movies where every time they want to remind you it's San Francisco. It's like, see, it's the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> like in every shot, <laughs> that's how you know, you know, because to us it's just a city too, right? So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. need it to be super duper accurate, but there's also the possibility that he lived here, you know, Rick Remender lived here at a pretty different period of time, so maybe it looked a little different. Who knows? Uh, it's possible yeah but yeah back to what i was saying about helmet though i do think that sprinkled throughout this volume there are quite a few scenes where there are just things about him that make me chuckle or things about him where they just make him come off as a pretty cool dude you know yeah i mean he can definitely still be a lunkhead and a teenager but compared uh-huh. to the other kids he's almost a hero yeah yeah he's he's a man that has a code and a principle or a kid that has a code or a principle yeah and he lives by it which is pretty cool yeah compared to the other kids he's the one who seems 
like he has the least amount of guile. Like yeah. he seems the one who's the most honest and yeah. straightforward. He wears yeah. his emotions on his sleeve and he like you'll never be guessing you'll never have to be worried if or guess if he's like plotting something is he gonna be treacherous is he gonna be the one that betrays you it's pretty you're pretty confident that he is what he is (laughs) yeah if he likes you he likes you if he doesn't like you you're gonna know that too yeah (laughs) for sure for sure I also wanted to talk about the the student body, and there's like oh, some interesting. Before stuff. we get to that, oh. I, I wanted to ask you about the scene with Master Lin when he calls the three students to his room. Oh yeah, but, sure. Uh, I'm. I think I'm. I might have just forgotten something uh, that was revealed to us previously. But what was the reason why Master Lin is so obsessed with finding Saya? I don't think they give you a reason because they hint that there's something special about their relationship to one another, but they don't, they have yet to tell us. Okay. So it hasn't been revealed to us either. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to double check on that. Because Master Lin, after the freshman finals, Master Lin had taken her under his wing. You know, he... When, when all this stuff in the freshman hunt was going on, he basically lambasted her for taking Marcus on as a pledge, and then he put it on her to correct that mistake. And when she followed through on that, I mean, I think there was an indication that there was already a closeness between them, uh, a specialness to their relationship with one another. But yeah. once she redeemed herself in his eyes in the following year remember uh in in the last volume she was taking special like one-on-one classes with him that's right you know and mm-hmm. having these special meetings so there was definitely something about their relationship that was different than um him and the other students that at at king's dominion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they they haven't really revealed that to us yet got it thanks yeah rick remender does a good job of jumping around and teasing us with details that he doesn't really tell you about there's something that happens later in in this volume that i wasn't aware of until i got to the very last issue and then i was then it all made sense but you know it's it's a very hard storytelling style to pull off and mm-hmm. I think he does a good job of it here. But anyways, yeah. So when we see the student body, um, you know, they're walking around and they are the popular kids at the school. Everyone's trying to kiss their butts and they're just kind of flexing their status. I, I, yeah, I was I, I, I was going to say popularity, but that's not really what this is because... I mean, they are popular, but that's it's not popular in the conventional sense that we that everybody wants to be like them because they find them likable or envy cool. them or or cool or whatever, right? This it's a popularity that comes from the fact that I think there's a little bit of fear mixed in there 
with a little bit of power seeking. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you could apply that to regular popularity too, but you know, it's it's deadly, I guess. <laughs> Hence the title, Deadly Class. Exactly. <laughs> Is that why they call that book this? <laughs> <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> The school for assassins is just a metaphor for actual high school. <laughs> it's just interesting to see them walking around because Shabnam's walking around and people are giving them high fives. But it, you also get to watch how their dynamics are with all the other kids. And it's really revealing about what they're, what's going on internally when when you're watching this all play out right so Mm -hmm. on i forget what page this is but on page 38 when they're walking through the hallways and everyone's just it goes back to that that last volume where shabnam gets drugged with truth serum and he just goes on this rant about how nobody's really your friend and everybody only wants something from you blah 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 and you know he just unloads on the student body and how he finds all of them despicable. Despicable? He's just such a tool. Just uh, despicable. <laughs> exactly. But he just sees them all as tools. But he has he's such a tool that he has no one else to go to because this is the only way that he knows how to coexist with these people, right? Mm-hmm. He's not likable enough or conventionally attractive enough to make friends on his own. And really, the only way that he, I I wouldn't even call the student body his friends, but the only way that he can be with these people and have this power group is through coercion and, you know, deal making. Yeah. But, yeah. So they're walking down, and at one point, one of the students is talking directly to Grogda. I think it's one of the uh, cartel kids. And he's he talks to her about how he wants a seat at the table and he wants to schedule a meeting. And Shabnam's just sitting right there and he's like, why are you talking to her? I'm the boss, you know? <laughs> and it just, it just, it's so revealing of the micro fractures that are beginning to show themselves in this, den of snakes um the other funny thing or interesting thing that i i I noticed is that grogda is just getting thinner and thinner so (laughs) it's all the math that's a yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're we're really not sure what's going on it's it's probably it's probably a thing where now that she is part of the in crowd, she has to look the part. And, and that's kind of where she was earlier on is, you know, now that they're the popular kids, she needs to look the part. So apparently she does copious amounts of meth to lose weight. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what else would you do if you wanted to lose that much weight in the shortest span of time? Okay, that's a solution. <laughs> sure beats dieting and exercise. 
know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that. You had to think about it. <laughs> well, none of this works if you think about it. <laughs> but the following scene is a pretty interesting one too, where they're at the shooting range and hold Shabnam's up, man. Hold up, over hold there. up, man. I gotta know what yeah. you think about Inferno. It's whack, man. It's I, I will admit that it is a crossover from my childhood. So it was one of the ones that I was aware of. And I think as a kid, I thought it was a big deal just because it was a crossover event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my dumb kid mind thought all of the crossover events were a big deal. So, uh, but I will say this, having read what Shabnam had to say about it, I do kind of agree that I don't think the X-Men should have magic or I'm not a big fan of it when X-Men do magic stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so do you, do it, you respect Shabnam's point, take on the X-Men or his views on his taste in comics? I think by default, I don't respect it because it's coming from him. Okay. <laughs> but I can't say that I d- disagree with what he has to say. Fair, fair. Yeah, I've never been a big fan of mixing uh, magic with the X-Men because in my mind, the X-Men were always more of a science fiction. Yeah, they were, they, they, they always came, I always interpreted them as a science fiction book or a book from a sci-fi angle. Yeah, so I mean, they're based there, on... Like the whole conceit of the X-Men is genetic mutation. So there's already this biological exactly. element inherent in the concept of mutants. Exactly. Exactly. And once you throw magic in there, it just feels really like it just comes out of left field. You know, I, I don't, it's hard to reconcile those two things coexisting with each other. So but, there aren't any magical based mutant characters that you do appreciate or enjoy? No. Like, I was Scarlet never, Witch I was, or Magic yeah. with a K. Yeah, I I never really had too much appreciation for the Magic uh, X characters. Mm, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I want to like Scarlet Witch, but there was always things, I mean, there was also always a bunch of things there that didn't make too much sense where I was just like, what exactly is chaos magic? <laughs> like, explain this to me coherently. <laughs> well, according to Brian Michael Bendis, chaos magic doesn't exist. Oh yeah, yeah. See, well, that's the thing. For the longest time, that was that was what I grew up with. But you're right. Now they've done away with that. So I don't well, even know that what was her powers. Also like Twenty are. years ago, <laughs> things could have changed in the <laughs> past true. twenty years. Chaos magic is real again. It's yeah, it's back again. Yeah, there we go. What'd you think of his take? I agreed with it. I thought What'd it was actually of, pretty funny. Yeah, it was, it's a funny little scene where here you have the power elite of the school, you know, plotting murders and stuff, but he's over here talking about X Men Inferno. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. There's just something amusing about it. Like it almost kind of feels like this is something. I don't know if Rick Remender 
is speaking through his character here. But it kind of feels like it could have been him talking through his character. Or at the very least, it's probably, you know, something that... It's probably based on a conversation he actually had at some point because any longtime comic book fan would have exactly this kind of conversation about the X-Men at some point. Actually, let me read out the, the four-panel scene for, for our listeners. Um, so Shabnam is there and he goes, More Inferno! Bah! An Inferno is exactly where this comic should end up. And then Stefan replies, or Stefan is over here. He's pretending to put uh, his fingers to his head in the form of a gun. And he's just going, kill me. A finger gun, right? And he's going, kill me, right? And Chapman goes, awful. Worst crossover ever. You should never mix X-Men with the supernatural. It's just too many things. Genetic mutation, demon lords, a clone of Jean Grey. It's a soup of disparate ideas. The Goblin Queen, ugh, worst character name ever. And Stefan is just over here and he replies, dude, you're obsessed with corporate-owned colorful punch people. There are real problems in the world. And you save your rage for the Goblin Queen? (laughs) The following bit after that is him going, you know what you should do? Pretend you're upset about the real world issues not being perfect in your superhero comics. That way, you can look like you care about the real world while still screaming about comic books. <laughs> <laughs> See, that definitely feels like commentary from Rick Remender. That, that part definitely feels like yeah. it's him saying something. <laughs> yeah. We've talked the, about it a little bit in the past. Stefan's dialogue definitely feels like Rick Remender talking to the audience. Exactly. Because he's taken some flack in the past for, you know, writing things in comics and having people just basically kind of dunk on him for it or you know go go at him and i do feel like that's a response to that yeah i think so too yeah especially you know things like the whole hubbub that happened when he was writing uncanny avengers like pretty early on in that run i want to say like issue five or something like shortly after that first arc whenever it was when the team was officially announced to the rest of the denizens of the Marvel Universe and Havoc yeah. gives a speech. Like there were a lot of people who, who thought that crossed the line. People or thought who, his speech was, was condescending or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and they just started going at him on Twitter and stuff. Yeah, because the speech was basically Havoc putting together a unity team that consisted of X-Men and Avengers. And... I forget what the context was, but they were at a press conference and someone was asking him something, asking Alex Summers something about like the term muty or something like that. And his response was more or less, I don't believe in labels. How about you just call me by my name? How about you just call me Alex or something like that, right? Yeah. And it's not, it's not a really contentious thing to say it's not really harmful it's just kind of whatever right but the response from the people was like that's just that's such a flaccid response to like racism and stuff like this you know and yeah 
and yeah, this this really does feel like it's Rick Remender's response to that sort of to that kind of anger that we were seeing from comics fans, mm-hmm. where it was like, look, these are just comics. How about how about settle down? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure he took a lot of flack over that time he had Sam Wilson become Captain America as well. Yeah, but I think it was a different group of people that hated him for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he just couldn't he's get any people, love he's from anyone. People from both sides of the spectrum angry at him at different points in time. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes dude just can't win. Mm-hmm. But he's doing fine. He he's got a pretty he's got a su- real successful comics career. He's doing great. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about that scene uh with stefan because stefan clearly has a grudge against shabnam this is the second time the first time we saw him drug him before he gives his big speech and now he's just kind of openly making fun of him in front of everybody else in the group talking down to him and at that point shabnam pulls a gun on him at the range and you just see his eyes get really beady and he just kind of loses it. He's about to kill him right on the spot. That whole <laughs> scene is amazingly drawn and the dialogue is intense. It really is. The one's going to read the, it. The last tier of panels on that page when Stefan has his hands up and then like there's a middle panel where you just see like a point like the point of like Stefan's point of view looking down the barrel of the gun at Shabnam's almost maniacal face it's like that's a heck of a drawing right there it really is all the way at the bottom right the three mm-hmm. three panels mm-hmm. yeah it's so intense but yeah I, I wanted to read the scene where shabnam just loses it on him and he goes so what happens is stefan goes out to the shooting range to go look at the bullseye because he doesn't believe that Grogda has hit a bullseye. He walks out there, takes a look at it, and then suddenly Shabnam is just talking to him, and he goes, I don't shit on mod music you love. Don't make fun of the queer obsessed with the Teddy Boy scene of another generation because he has no identity. And, and Stefan is just saying, like, don't point that at me. And then Shabnam goes, but I'm the obsessive nerd. You think you can diminish me? You think you can embarrass me? And then, yeah, you just get this close-up of his face where, like you said, he's just maniacal. He, he's he's losing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's it's, something it's about really his... intense exchange. Yeah, and there's something about Shabnam's dialogue in that sequence you just read that really reminds me of the Kingpin as well. <laughs> just yeah. that scene of, From the you think you can Daredevil. diminish me? You think you can embarrass me? <laughs> He's ready to kill a dude over that. Yeah, yeah. You embarrassed me in front of her. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of from the Netflix Daredevil. <laughs> but yeah, after that, we get into the scene where Victor basically lays it out for them where this whole thing is dysfunctional and he thinks he would make a better boss. and you know, we see what the divisions are. Uh, the girls vote with Shabnam, and Stefan and Polly vote with Victor. 
and when Petra tries to make her vote, you know, here we have the the goth kid who really transformed herself so that she could be part of their group and only to discover that she was never really accepted into their group and they're just as petty and vindictive as ever as they just tell her to her face that we stripped you of your voting powers because we think you're kind of nuts you want to get nuts let's get nuts <laughs> yeah but this is a pretty big moment for petra moving forward it really is. She realizes that she can't be part of them and that they've essentially just like diminished her as a person and she loses yeah. her crap and goes straight at Randy. <laughs> yeah. I like how she just goes straight at the weakest person there. <laughs> like, <laughs> man. She finds some, like, something though. A shiv and or she uses her, her uh not a shiv. It, she she gets some kind of a powder from her her pocket mirror and and like blows it at Brandy's face and really messes her up. Okay, that's what I was gonna say. Cause I I kept looking at that scene and trying to make sense of what she had, and I was like, I don't know what that is. Like, cause at first it looks kind of like a knife, cause it's got that jagged part when uh, she's holding it, but then she like blows this stuff into her face. So I was pretty, yeah. I was pretty, pretty uh, confused there. I think I'll that pull. first panel when, when she pulls it out, uh, it looks like a jagged edge, but I think it's just uh, an effect to show that the, there's something reflective in the mirror or that, you know, to like it's okay, shining, okay. but there's some yeah. kind of uh, white powder or some kind of substance on inside it so that when she opened it up and blows it at brandy it, it immediately induces vomiting so petra yeah. had already been established in the previous couple she's volumes like a poison expert. yeah she's really good at poison so i guess she just i guess she just keeps poisoning her makeup mirror for some reason yeah <laughs> you never I know when it'll wanted... come in handy <laughs> i also wanted to note that i got a kick out of the scene where after she blows the poison in Brandy's face, she vomits, and the sound effect is glorf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shout out to our That's boy, funny. Russ Wooten, right there, man. Good job. That's a funny effect, man. <laughs> it is, man. Like, it totally fits because it's super undignified, and that's exactly <laughs> the position Brandy is in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the perfect sound to encapsulate the gushy witness of a chunky vomit <laughs> <laughs> blood vomit blood vomit exactly <laughs> anything else about this particular issue you wanted to go over or you get to move on to the next one mm, i guess the only other thing that we haven't really mentioned is the scene at the very end when we see saya and her mother exit the room where Sai has been convalescing and then we see uh, Kenji and he ends up uh, punching his mom <laughs> and like knocking her out. It's like, 
man. That guy's a piece of work. Yeah. He's he's a hater, man. He is, <laughs> he's man. a hater. He's a hater. <laughs> just ain't no word for it. <laughs> uh, All right. Now I'm ready to move on. Okay. Deadly Class, issue 29. The student body prepares for fall homecoming, but students are not happy with the quality of the work and production. Turns out Shabnam is better at acquiring power than he is at wielding it. Quan relies, relays his findings to Kenji, but Kenji needs more. He needs Marcus brought back to Master Lin as irrefutable proof of her betrayal and dishonor. Quan balks at the task, but Kenji threatens to reveal that Quan had an illegitimate child with, with one of the Yakuza's daughter and aborted it without, without any other recourse. Quan has no choice but to acquiesce. As he leaves his call, Quan is cornered by Victor, who reveals that he witnessed Quan killing Saya. Victor will take credit for the kill but he will dangle this knowledge over Quan's head, using him in whatever way he sees fit. Zenzel has an encounter with Brandy in the locker room. Brandy questions Zenzel about Saya, but the conversation quickly turns to one about racial grievances. Zenzel ends up leaving a visibly shaken and uncertain Brandy in the locker room. Petra, having been shaken by her interaction with the student body, reverts to her former self, dressing up in her former goth trappings. While moping in the cemetery, Petra contemplates ending her life when Helmet approaches her, and he invites her out for one last night before she takes any drastic steps. They end up going out on the town and playing pranks on the locals. The two have a good time, and in spite of her, cry, of her crisis, the two make a connection and embrace each other. This was probably one of my favorite episodes so far. There was something about all the events of the story that stood out. Because I think every scene was pretty compelling here. We can start with the beginning of the book with the setup of the homecoming event. Like, there's definitely something about that scene that kind of sets up how the power structure that's currently in place is a bit uncertain. And it just feels like with every passing day, Shabnam's hold on things is getting more and more tenuous. But he's willing yeah. to do whatever it takes to try and maintain that power. Like even that very scene, or that the very uh, end of the scene, he says to Polly, here's a lesson on how the real world works, Polly. It doesn't matter if we do a good job. It only matters that we hold on to power the longest. And then, like the way that panel is drawn, it just makes him seem way like more menacing. or something. Yeah, exactly. Like he's yeah. just completely in shadow, except for his glasses, and you don't see his eyes. You just see teeth. two white circles, and his teeth. It's it's definitely ghoulish, but it it's a really nice drawing. It is. It is. And like seeing the two, the 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 outline of the two girls behind him. Like that whole image as a as a whole is it it just makes them look like yeah like ghouls or demons or something. Mm -hmm. 
but seeing that that all uh, work in combination with each other, it's a nice it's a nice picture. It is. It's yeah. Great composition. Mm-hmm. Then I want to go to the next scene with Quan because I think earlier we were talking about how. Uh, we learned he's being blackmailed. So here's the the scene where we learn exactly what's how he's being blackmailed, and it's not because his family is being held hostage. <laughs> it's because he did something stupid by knocking yeah. up a yakuza lord's daughter or something, and then forcing her to get an abortion. So, yeah, I guess I have to take back what I said earlier about not being completely selfish because he still sounds completely selfish. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he's being manipulated and blackmailed into being a traitor, it's hard to feel any kind of sympathy or anything for him because he kind of did it to himself, you know? Yeah. And just the way they draw him in these scenes where he's on the phone with Kenji and he's just got these beads of sweat. He, yeah, he just looks super rat like, you know, (laughs) Like, if you wanted to do a movie and you wanted to show a guy just looking like a nervous, untrustworthy wreck, that's what this guy would look like. That's how you, he's got all of the typical features of a cowardly, untrustworthy wreck right here. Exactly, exactly. And then for him to end that call with Kenji, to walk out directly right into victor yeah he tells him who who now has him over a barrel it it just keeps getting worse for this guy because not now not only does is is he still in servitude to kenji now victor has him over a barrel mm-hmm. and he basically just tells him i'm gonna take credit for this kill because you know i need it but I'm pretty sure it's not going to do you any good if it ever comes out that you did it. So, you know, you being part of the in-group of the kids that I have the most interest in at the current time, I'm going to use that and I'm going to use you to to infiltrate their group, essentially. You know? It's, it's interesting that you use such sophisticated language to summarize victor's instructions to him because basically he literally says you are victor's bitch and he just smashes the dude's face into the wind into the glass or the mirror i was trying to be i was trying to be eloquent but yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that says it all it says it all yeah it's a super compelling scene though but then we move from that scene to the scene with Zanzel and Brandy in the girls' locker room. And this scene is probably even more compelling. And it, it's definitely one of the more overtly socially aware scenes in the yeah. in the book so far. Like, feels like it's a chance for some social commentary as we see Brandy just go off on this full-blown racist rant. Like, I guess she... Yeah. I guess she stops short of saying like the N-word or something, but like all the other stuff that she says is that, you know, typical white supremacist kind of junk. Yeah. Yeah. And I was I was thinking about the scene. Yeah. Totally malicious and racist. 
I was thinking about the scene and I was I was wondering about like the period when Reminder originally wrote it. And I didn't I guess I didn't check exactly when this specific issue dropped. Heck, I don't even know exactly what month it would have been when he started writing the script for the issue. So I part of me wonders if this was like written as a response to recent events of 2017 or if it had just been a response to like whatever was percolating like even before then i'm not exactly sure but either way it was like it must have been pretty timely like if you were reading the issues as they were coming out but even today you know it's still something that feels just as relevant yeah yeah it does feel like it's one of those scenes that's specifically written to deconstruct a certain kind of person. Yeah. Um, it's it's the gift of being a writer and as a writer being kind of the god of your own world, right? Where you can take things that are in the popular zeitgeist at the time and you can construct a scenario and the perfect dialogue to just have it played out in front of you and just have it be so satisfying and have it say everything that you would want it to say were you in that given situation in real life right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's it's like yeah like like the short version of it is um you know we live in a world now where it might be more popular or acceptable to be racist than it has in a long time. And there's definitely a lot of back and forth in terms of uh, countering narratives, but he, he writes this one scene where, yeah, Brandy's over here talking about how um, she's basically just talking down to the other uh, uh black students at the school and she's talking down to Zenzel and Zenzel just has this moment where you know after everything that Brandy's had to say to her about you know her privilege and about how um you know how how she doesn't come from you know her words not mine but like backward savages or something like that right mm-hmm. um what what Zinzel says uh eventually as she comes real up she comes up real close to her and she just breaks her down it's it's one of these moments where you know it's one of those moments in comics where it's like how does it feel to be deconstructed right and she says this stuff to brandy that absolutely just leaves her deconstructed mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um so i'll 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 read out the scene uh it's a couple of pages but she goes um so uh, i'll I'll read brandy's part she goes look at the world not a single white civilization comes near to the level of depravity it's all shored up shored up in them hell holes you people come from why we gotta crack the whip on you to do a day of work and you get these three panels of uh zenzel's face and you can watch in the first panel, her expression is just really stern. And then you can tell she's angry, but as the panels move over, her expression 
lightens up a bit and then she just really level-headedly and coolly gives her response and she says we could look back in history and see a lot of things see all the millions of people slaughtered by whites who simply wanted more who couldn't get over their basic reptilian desire to take kill expand uh brandy responds with true we invented civilization and you savage types just can't see fit to come along with it and zenzel responds with you didn't invent civilization civilization you imposed your version of it on anyone in your way and brandy responds with so tell me why ain't you doing better here in america what's holding you back i can tell you about slavery resource theft colonization and systemic racism but it wouldn't matter you wouldn't empathize or consider any of it what have you or your family ever accomplished accomplished what did you contribute to society nothing entitled failures who turned to crime parasites incapable of achieving anything without stealing it you cling to it as a badge because white pride is all you have by your own reasoning the only special thing about you is the color of your skin and she just turns her back on her and walks away yeah it's a really great scene yeah that was great that's one of those where you read it and you gotta tip your hat to the writer man yeah yeah Yeah, it it definitely makes me wonder if how long this specific scene and this dialogue had been percolating in Reminder's mind. I don't know. I, for yeah. some reason, like the first thing I thought of because it was 2017 was Charlottesville, you know, and like that's when I realized that there were so many white supremacists and white pride people still out there. Yeah. Like I yeah. think up to that point, it had it had been. I was at a place where like I was we thinking, knew they you know, existed. Yeah, I knew they existed, but you know, like but, there would be people on the internet. But then I, I don't yeah. remember seeing people like march in the streets holding torches and you know, like openly, yeah, being like the KKK or something. It felt like they were relics, right? Like yeah. they existed, but they were in decline. Like a fringe minority. A sudden, exactly, exactly. But then all of a sudden. All this stuff was coming out and it was it was it just made you realize just how much more prevalent this attitude was than you had expected you know we had lived all our lives thinking oh we've come a long way like all that stuff is kind of behind us but only to find out that oh yeah this stuff is still like super beneath the surface but it's definitely here mm-hmm. yeah it's like Man, there are people who, who like flew across the country just to be a part of Unite the Right or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it's been a it's been a wild time. <laughs> yeah, to say the yeah. least. <laughs> These past uh, seven years or so, seven or eight years. Yeah, it's definitely a harsh reality. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder if. I was just blind to everything in reality up until that point, you know? Cause it's like, I'm sure all this stuff definitely was around. Like yeah, there are definitely yeah. people who held those beliefs and stuff. 
but for whatever reason that period was the thing that just made it seem like there were a lot more of them than i had ever realized yeah yeah like you gotta understand that for a good chunk of our youth growing up like the only time we ever saw this kind of stuff and like I, i won't speak for you but the only time i saw this kind of stuff was in movies or like Jerry Springer or something like that, right? <laughs> like, you know, you would see an occasional parade, but it wasn't anything like that. And you, or maybe you'd see like people kind of making fun of it. You know, uh, like I said, like Jerry Springer, but it, it wasn't anything that I really ever felt needed to be taken too seriously because, again, it just felt like they were on the losing side of this conflict right mm-hmm. and then 2017 happened and well heck we can go even as far back as like 2016 and look at all that stuff that happened and it definitely becomes this thing where it's like oh yeah these aren't just people who are you know nuts or whatever just you know out in the backwoods these are there's a lot of these people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and I feel like that one panel when Zenzel is on her rant and she says, I could tell you about slavery, resource theft, colonization, and systemic racism, but it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't empathize or consider any of it. Like that's something that feels like it's way too real, you know? It's like Yeah. How many yeah. How often do we see scenes like that play out in reality where some there will be some kind of debate, but like one side is just not going to empathize or consider yeah. the facts of history or reality. It doesn't matter. Yeah, None it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's it's that whole thing of, I, yeah, essentially, if I gave you all the facts that proved a point, it, it would all just be on deaf ears because you don't care. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I just think of all the documentaries I've seen about hate groups and these white supremacist groups, like all of their rhetoric is, it's hard to understand why people would be so dumb to cling to things like that, you know, in the face of like everything that they can see from learning history or observing modern society. It's like there are still people out there who want to wear white hoods and burn crosses and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But it's a very, when Zenzel does what she does, it's a very cathartic moment. For, it is, man. For, for us, because, yeah, like I said, or like you said, a lot of these conversations just aren't real conversations anymore, especially like online, because. You just want to be able to say something that'll impact someone, right? You you want to say the right thing that'll make a racist feel it. Maybe no matter how small it is, the the impact of whatever it is that you say, you just want them to know for a brief moment just something that'll like hit them right in the very core. So mm-hmm. when he writes this scene and he says uh, and Zenzel says all this stuff to 
to Brandy, like when at, at the end of it, she's standing there with her knife, like in this defensive position while Zenzel walks away. And you just get this one panel. It's a close up of her face. And, you know, I can't help but wonder, like, the way it looks to me is what she said really cut deep with her to the point where, you know, she's going to have to live with that, you know? Yeah, Brandy has no response to any of the stuff that Zenzel said to her. Exactly. That's. It just makes you wish that all racists could have a moment like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the catharsis, the cathartic moment of the scene, man. Yeah. And it's absolutely. like, it just feels really satisfying because Brandy's threatening Zenzel with this shiv and Zenzel doesn't have to get physical with her in order to deconstruct yeah. her. Exactly. The whole time that that we build up to this scene she's talking about how they're the savages and you know people from those parts of the world are the ones who don't have civilization or whatever right like that's that's the entire crux of her argument but she's the one over here wielding a knife and who doesn't even lack the words to make a constructive argument against what she's got, what Zinzel has to say. Mm-hmm. She's speechless. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great scene. Great scene. Um, following that, we get the moment where Petra, you know, having, having been shook from her reality because of, you know, just how crappy the student council is. She, She's, you can tell that she's really messed up by the guilt of Billy. This is something that she still lives with. Uh, we talked about this in volume one of the book where it, it didn't seem like she was okay, right? Even though she got herself out of her, uh, her clothes and, you know, kind of put on this false face of a typical happy student she you could tell that what she had done to billy had affected her on some level and she was just putting on this strong face but it was clear to everybody that she wasn't okay and having being faced with that with the student council uh this the the people that are Again, not not really her friends, but the people that she's kind of stuck with by default and realizing that she truly has nobody and she might have killed the the few people that could have been the closest thing to friends that she did have. She reverts back to her, her goth look and I, I believe she was contemplating killing herself until Helmet shows up and basically goes... He doesn't necessarily give her a speech or anything like that. He says as much, but he just decides to have, you know, take her out on the town and, you know, give her a reason to not kill herself. Yeah, as and, he's as he puts it, give it one more night. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's 
it's a funny little scene because what they end up doing is they go to the 7-Eleven, they buy a bunch of frozen burritos, and they uh, set up a catapult, and they're just firing them at people's houses. <laughs> but they miscalculate the strength of the cat of the slingshot and they end up just firing a burrito straight through this guy's window it just totally <laughs> smashes through the window and he's just terrified because he thinks he's under attack <laughs> that whole page is hilarious because it smashes through the glass shocking the guy it hits him in the chest knocks him off his chair and then he's like oh you know because it i'm sure getting hit by a frozen burrito at high speed hurts and then yeah, he just yeah, looks yeah, at the sure. ground and he's like, what the? And he sees the frozen burrito on the floor. And he's just like, why? Why? <laughs> he starts screaming, why? <laughs> there was just something about that response that made me laugh. Yeah. Like, instead of being angry or anything like that, he's just like, why? <laughs> well, the other funny thing is, right after that they're like sitting on this rooftop and they're talking about it and helmet proceeds to describe the entire scene but through the lens of a comic book origin yeah and he he basically describes batman's origin in batman year one by frank miller and mazzuccelli <laughs> yeah uh, you know yes father uh, the... i shall become a burrito <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, it's the scene in uh, year one where the bat comes smashing through the window. We've seen this uh, recreated in movies quite a few times, but the it's the scene where the bat comes smashing through the window and Bruce Wayne sees the bat. And in that moment, he knows he must become a bat. But instead of a bat, it's a burrito that comes flying through the window. And the dude is like, yes, <laughs> I will <laughs> become a burrito. <laughs> Uh, it's good comedy, man. It is, man. It made me laugh. Yeah. Funny thing is, is this whole scene takes place in the Sunset District, and uh, not not that I want to give away where I live on a podcast that will be consumed by anyone with an internet <laughs> connection. This is a uh, tens of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a neighborhood I am intimately familiar with, and. It's it's fun to see it mentioned in the comic. I don't necessarily think it looks like the Sunset District. It just kind of looks like it could have been any kind of random suburb. But it's fun nonetheless to imagine doing this in the Sunset District. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, for those yeah. of you who aren't familiar with San Francisco, the Sunset District is on the... Uh, it's one of those neighborhoods where it's more residential. So there are a couple of commercial corridors with stores like your 7-Elevens and a bunch of restaurants and things like that. But for the most part, most of the streets are just your typical one-family house or maybe the occasional uh, duplex. A few, I guess there are a few apartment complexes. The closest thing to a suburb. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like particularly... It's not as expensive or the houses aren't as big as some of the other neighborhoods like Pack Heights or whatever. But, you know, it, it's like more quiet, I guess. And maybe you'd say in recent years there have been an influx of people 
um, and more cars and and things like that in the neighborhood. But certainly back in the in the eighties, it was more quiet. So the idea of like a random burrito bursting through your window and hitting you in the chest would have been <laughs> even more shocking. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Do you think that's a thing that Rick Remender did when he was a teenager? Honestly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to be honest, yeah. I I think that's that sounds like the kind of thing uh a kid would do growing up in like a boring suburb or something like that, where you gotta make your own fun. Have you ever done anything as bad as that? Uh I didn't really grow up in the suburbs, man. I grew like when I was a kid, I grew up in the Tenderloin, so, you know, so, okay, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening, if you know, if you've just listened to Drew's description of the sunset, um, the Tenderloin is definitely the more inner city part of San Francisco, and basically, I didn't grow up in, like, a house, I grew up in, like, apartments, you know, so, we had these giant buildings and I'd say that when I was really young, I didn't really, I don't remember, I don't think there were a lot of kids in like the first apartment building I lived in because I remember most of the friends that I had were just other adults or, you know, like grown people, like, yeah, like, you know, just friendly old adults that lived in the building or whatever, right? Just neighbors or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when I got, uh, but at one point we did move to a place where there were other kids and that was definitely a thing where, you know, the first time you live in this complex where there are kids your age, you, you develop this community with these other kids and you just kind of go where they go and you, you know, you, you have shenanigans basically. So uh, I, I don't remember anything quite like flinging a burrito through someone's home or anything like that. But I do remember getting into some stuff, you know. I guess you're not going to elaborate on the podcast. <laughs> I will not. Of, has the statute of limitations passed yet? <laughs> I mean, the statute of limitations is probably well past, but I, for the sake of my uh, integrity and my reputation, I probably shouldn't <laughs> talk about these things. All right, uh, all right. just tell me offline that I, after this. Exactly. I, it's better that I not talk about them. <laughs> uh, yeah. I do think that the conversation that Helmut and Petra have at the end of the issue when they're on the rooftop, it's a pretty good scene, man. Like the the writing is believable. You know, it's some good dialogue where they're talking about things that matter. They're talking about the things that are going on with the council and Shabnam and everybody else. Um, and you can really see how this conversation bonds them. Like Helmut's got surprisingly a good amount of empathy and he's a good listener. And Petra, for whatever reason, has decided to open up to him. Maybe 
breaking the ice with their antics earlier made a big difference or just seeing that he was willing to like reach a hand out to her when she was at a low point but i think it's a really good scene in terms of bringing them together like there's definitely a lot of other stories whether they're comics or tv shows or movies where sometimes you can kind of tell when the when two characters get together romantically it's a kind of rushed or just feels like it doesn't really feel uh super believable because yeah you just kind of get the sense that the story wanted them to be together so therefore they are together yeah but i feel like in this case even though like it did feel like it came out of left field but it didn't feel unorganic exactly exactly yeah it kind of felt like helmut was just willing to be a, a friend to somebody who looked like she needed a friend and that's why they went out and you know shot burritos into people's houses yeah but then it's not until like the very end when they actually have like a heart-to-heart conversation about serious stuff when they feel closer like she's willing to share her vulnerabilities with him and he's understanding like unlike a lot of other kids who would probably you know be jokey about it or maybe even uh disrespectful he he seemed to actually be more mature like in a way it's there's something funny about the idea of this guy being the kind of person who decides to shoot frozen burritos with the slingshot into people's windows but like he's got that kind of immaturity but he's got the maturity to like listen to somebody talk about her problems when she was thinking about killing herself you know yeah so there's a, a a funny dichotomy there but it it just seems to fit man it just seems to make sense within the context of the story within the context of petra and helmet as we've known them over these past few volumes and it's a scene that i think does a good job and goes a long way into explaining how they get closer to each other and get into this relationship yeah yeah it just makes me think about how i think you mentioned in one of the previous episodes how this is even though it's obvious that the setting of this comic is this high school but it's also this allegory for being a teenager or whatever right Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting to think of how so much of the book is or at least maybe even in this particular volume like so much about it is the isolation of being a teenager um but yeah watching these two random people people who haven't really had that much connection up to this point make this connection it's I don't know. I, I I do think that that's apt for a story about high school where maybe at the time in school you you happen to think that your the relationships you have are like the most are going to be the most lasting relationships or the they're maybe the most emotionally powerful relationships that you're going to have or or whatever, but um 
yeah to to see these two people just connect with one another in under these circumstances where everybody's just feeling super alone you know mm -hmm. and i think petra like super speaks to that because yeah look at her entire story arc it's it's one where you could say that she really did try to change herself to be this person that could be more likable or more popular just to be with the popular kids right i, I like I, I don't know if she if, if you would say that she did it out of a, a need to be liked or anything like that but she certainly didn't have any friends um going into it especially since the few friends that she did have ended up being dead right mm -hmm. so so she she forsook forsaked i don't know <laughs> uh mm -hmm. like she turned away from her relationship with marcus and billy in the worst way possible by getting by betraying them and getting billy killed killing not even getting billy killed killing billy so that she could be part of this in crowd and these kids end up just being typical teenagers, you know, just mm -hmm. not very friendly, not very accepting, not very appreciative, just purely, what's the word? Purely using her for what whatever she could offer them, right? And when when she didn't have anything to offer, there was really, like Shabnam said, when she didn't have anything to offer, there they just saw no use for her. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. here she is reverting back to her, I guess you could say her true self or the self that she wanted to be, the, the version of herself that she was more comfortable with. And she meets uh, Helmet up here on this roof and they have this moment of connectivity. And it's interesting that up to this point, they haven't really had any interactions with each other. And it just goes to show how it just takes that one moment of empathy and vulnerability to like really develop a human connection with another person. Well yeah. said. All right. Anything else about this issue? Nope. I'm ready for issue 30. All right. Issue 30. Here we go. Zell writes a letter to her parents updating them on her status. She informs them about how Quan has convinced the group of friends to go on a road trip to Mexico. She sends the letter off before hopping into the car. The group is made up of Tishawi, Zenzel, Quan, Helmet, and his new girlfriend, Petra. I think it's safe to say that she's his girlfriend at this point, right? Or I think so. At the very least, they're makeout buddies. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh <laughs> Why you got to complicate this, man? <laughs> you could have just said yes or no. <laughs> okay. Why'd you have to um, go make things so complicated? <laughs> oh, man. Really? <laughs> they would hate that music, though. Petra they would and Helmet definitely would hate, hate that, that music. music. They would hate Avril Lavigne, period. <laughs> yeah. It's not even about the music. They would just hate her. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah. Uh okay. 
As Zell sits in the back seat, Tashawi approaches her, asking her how she's doing, making a cryptic reference to an assembly that happened the day before. Zenzel is tight-lipped and doesn't want to engage any further on the subject. On the road, on the road, the French share in each other's tastes in music, exchanging the in, their insights with one another. It's an ex, it's an exciting, fun ride full of laughter and hijinks. At dinner, the conversation becomes philosophical as they discuss the nature of friendship. Quan reminds Tashawi that he's a bummer and hard to be around, while Tashawi alludes once again to the mysterious pep rally and how Quan was unscathed from the events. Helmet shuts down the conversation immediately, standing up for Quan and his integrity. Tashawi doesn't push any further, but in his heart, he knows what Quan really is. From a distance, Victor and Brandy watched the group with ill intent. They, they followed them. Uh, they have followed them down here. As they are about to leave, Quan has had it. He refuses to go any further with Tashawi and forces the group to choose between and forces the group to choose between them. And he goes off to sulk. Tashawi goes after Quan and tries to bury the hatchet. In playground, the two have a heart to heart and come to an understanding. Before they leave. They decide to go down a big slide. Quan slides down first, making a discovery, a gruesome discovery. But instead of warning Tashawi, he encourages him to go down the slide face first. The next day, they arrive in Mexico. As they get supplies, Quan overhears someone on the phone. And he realizes it's Marcus from Saya's journal and prepares to attack him. When suddenly there's a scream in the other room. It's Maria, and she's just ran into Petra. All right. So definitely one of those issues where I think the dialogue drives most of it, and I am for that. I, I love these stories or the, the points in these stories where the characters can just I guess relax and you know they're just being kids and they're going on a road trip so they're having a good time and we're just seeing their interactions we're listening into their conversations and they're not necessarily specifically you know driving forward the overall plot or anything it's just a nice chance to do some character building and maybe lay down a few subtle subplots. Mm. But I always enjoy these stories, man, where you have a chance to let the characters breathe. Like instead of just having the characters go from one major event to the next major event, like a lot of superhero comics work, like we actually get to see them have a bit of downtime. We get to see them have a life basically right right yeah it's it's cool to see them just spending time with each other in this car and just watching their dynamics play out you're watching helmet with petra just you know being a couple that are into each other and at the same time you're watching a budding dynamics between some of these other characters that haven't seen up to this point 
Tesali and uh, Tesali. Sorry if I pronounce it wrong, but Tesawi and Zenzel have are actually getting kind of closer in this scene too, as he shows. Up to this point, he's kind of an abrasive jerk, but there's some sign that he is capable of caring for people, right? In spite yeah. of his abrasiveness. And and yeah, um, they talk about this mysterious pep rally that happened the day before. And I, I remember when I read this issue, I I went back. I had to flip back because I was like, oh, did I miss something? Yeah, same here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah. You, it, you mentioned uh, we haven't talked after what happened at the assembly. Are you okay? Yeah. And I was like, wait, what happened at the assembly? <laughs> exactly. I was like, what what assembly? <laughs> yeah. I had to go back a couple of issues because I really wasn't sure. But um we don't find out till later what what it was but it, it's it's just another example of rick remender kind of uh, of rick remender teasing out these events of significance that happens to these characters but kind of working backwards by showing you the effects of of the uh the aftermath mm-hmm. of those events and then giving you the context after the fact. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting way to tell a story for sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Have you ever and, been in a car when the driver was headbanging to the music and you got worried that he wasn't paying attention to the road? No, but it did make me think of that one time we were driving and these dudes were like headbanging and we kind of wondered what music they were listening to. And we were like, wouldn't it be funny if it was like Michelle Branch or a book <laughs> on tape? <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Um, I always have fun seeing these little scenes when Reminder decides to inject his I don't know if, what kind of music he personally listens to but it's fun to see him do these scenes where the characters talk about music and just revel in the music that they enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember a scene from a couple of volumes ago when uh I think Marcus went to Tower Records and the dude there was talking to him about the B52s or something or maybe it was the other way around. Uh and like yeah, he's had Marcus. I was talking to the shop guy about. Oh, oh yeah, it wasn't Marcus. It was just some customer. That's right. Yeah. Marcus and Willie would have those conversations early in the series about. I think they were talking about the Smiths and and rap well, music. We, we saw that scene earlier when he was having that conversation in his head with imaginary Marcus, and they were talking or about imaginary Willie. Or imaginary Willie. Yeah. 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 So. It's it's definitely a running like not necessarily theme, but it's 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 a running like device, I guess, or a plot device, uh, or I, not. I think not, it is a theme. I think it's a theme. Okay. Music, the music of the era, because it, it it also feels like some of the some of the titles to the trade paperbacks were named after songs. Right. Like, I don't know. I'm sure there's a song named "This Is Not the End," but I don't know like off the top of my head if there's a specific 80s song that that's supposed to reference but i know some of the other titles definitely referenced 
uh, 80s songs. Like there was one called Kids of the Black Hole, Snake Pit, you know. So things like that were were pretty clear references. I'd have to do a little research about This Is Not the End. But it's fun to... Is Reagan Youth uh, a, a song title? I think so, yeah. I could imagine that being a song title. It's yeah. a good song title. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, even like this conversation between uh, Petra and Helmut about their respective music scenes, whether it's uh, the goth music or um, mm. metal music, you know, that's all. It's it's pretty entertaining stuff. It is. It is. Yeah, and you're just watching them have a good laugh. It's it's good lighthearted stuff, you know. I, there's this one scene where um, I like the scene where he uh he laughs at her or he's like shocked that she likes Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> I the one scene that I like is they're just headbanging and Petra's going Slayer's fucking amazing. Like there's there's something about that panel that's just it's full of mirth and joy, you know, and I I, I I vibe with it. Yeah. That that panel is all vibes for sure. Yeah. Like tell the truth, man. To tell you the truth, when I was reading this issue, once I got to that scene, I paused reading the comic and I went to YouTube just to listen to that song. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, but you know, there's definitely some other plot bits here. We we get some sort of allusion to well, we see more of Toshawi in this uh, particular issue. Like up to this point, he's like I said, he's been kind of an abrasive jerk, and but there's something that he's getting kind of right here. There's because this whole time he's kind of being gruff with Quan, and he's even alluding to the fact that you know. It's easy to, at one point, he says something to the effect of when, when they're at dinner, he's talking about how it's easy to do things that look like, that make you look like a f- good friend. But, you know, what, like a good friend is really going to be someone who, who does the hard stuff for you when things get hard, like dangerous or whatever, right? When you need mm-hmm. them to, when you need them the most. And up to this point, you don't really know what he's talking about again, but, it's it's a scene where out of context it makes Tashawi look bad, but when you see what happens later, it's like, oh, he's actually not that bad of a dude, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The yeah. all the tension that uh, stews stews up between him and Quan, like it, it is interesting to see how that builds up over the course of the issue because even when they're in the car there's this whole conversation that he has with everybody else. I guess he just kind of like drags down the mood, right? Like everybody's having a good time listening to music and uh, just not thinking about anything too heavy. And then all of a sudden he, he starts talking about white supremacy and, and all this stuff again. And, and like, you know, it, of course, Helmut's got some thoughts on that and Tasawi's not going to back down. He's going to engage the, the debate, but like, yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those scenes that does a lot to 
build up the characters and just yeah. give them more characterization. Because yeah, yeah. a scene like this, I feel like, like similarly to the scene from the previous issue with Zenzel and Brandy, um, a scene like this could easily come across as like either preachy or, uh, you know, I, I it could it could be a scene with an agenda, and I use you know scare quotes <laughs> on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But. I think to me, the scene feels like it comes across as like genuine character writing, you know, like these. Yeah. It's, it's a scene that purposefully shows that. I believe this kid really believes this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't take it yeah. as this is how uh remender is trying to get me to think a certain way, or he's trying to, you know, present one side or some other side, a specific way to get me to believe his ideology about anything. It yeah. just feels like these kids are having a conversation that kids, that these kids would actually have. Like if they were real people, they would probably have these conversations being stuck in a car for a bunch of hours on a road trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's consistent with who he is. It's consistent with what a person like him would believe a person, you know, based on what we've already established of what we know of this kid. So yeah, and, and I do think these issue, this particular issue, does give us a little more insight into him. Um, yeah, quite a bit more insight because, like you said earlier, insight, he was yeah. he was like pretty abrasive and a jerk, but he was also kind of a background character. And like this is the issue where I feel like we got to see a lot more from him. And even that mm-hmm. little scene you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago when he uh, checks in with Zenzel to see how she's doing after the assembly. Like, yeah. It's a scene where, uh, again, we were confused because we didn't know what assembly they were talking about. Mm. But it does show that there's a little bit more to this guy than just He's being a jerk. Because she actually not yeah. being a jerk. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like Zenzel is yeah. one of those characters where I feel like she is probably she comes across as a better person than a lot of the other characters in terms of you know just not being a jerk and not being you know, all selfish or egocentric or whatever. Like she's not out to like power grab or or backstab anybody. She kind of just like minds her own business and yeah, gets whatever she gets out of going to assassin school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she's like the exact. I, I guess like out of everybody in the car, she's like the one person who seems like she could use a little more kindness in her life and um tasawi is the one who like shows concern for her and actually you know checks in on her and how she's doing because it seems like everybody else is doing just fine i mean yeah helmut and petra have this fun banter going on and kwan is always just his usual slick self self. (laughs) yeah yes slick mopey either or yeah yeah, but I I did want to go over the scene a little bit where, well, okay, first thing, uh, there there's another scene in here that does make me again. It's just adds to the portfolio of things that I have to like about Helmet, uh, at this point, and that's the scene where, you know, keep in mind at this point we the readers know what Quan is about, and 
there's not much to like there, but when Tashawe is questioning Quan's integrity, Helmet is the guy that sticks up for him, and he basically goes, um, what does he say? He says, I'm done. You don't want to call my friend's integrity into question. Zenzel said we should invite you, so I agreed. We've put up with your shit and your negativity and mewling, but I won't have you talk trash about Quan. And then he goes, when a bunch of hopped up ninjas surrounded me, determined to kill me, who came back and saved me? Quan did. He's really very brave and reliable. And it's just the kind of thing where it's like, man, this guy is true blue, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. it just makes you want a friend like him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's a that's somebody that you can count on in the crisis. But the, yeah, the sad sure. thing is that Quan is a traitor. So yeah. the helmet's kind of got his faith misplaced. Yeah, Quan doesn't deserve that sort of loyalty. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah. Um, so after they have this argument, uh, Quan gets sulky and he basically says, yeah, okay, I don't want to be in this car ride anymore. Uh, you guys are going to choose, have to choose between me and Tosawi if, if you want to keep going. Because if, if he's in the car, I'm not, I'm not going. So at this point, Tosawi's like, oh, man. I've I've brought down the mood and he goes over to talk to him. And this is another good scene of insight into just what Tasawi is about. And it shows a little bit of self-awareness on his part too. Um, he, he goes, I really made a dick of myself. And he says, some part of me always feels the need to pick on someone, make sure I'm not at the bottom of the pecking order. And yeah, that's, that's just the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a good scene because it that's real for, teenage life right there yeah for a school full of assassins where everybody's kind of unlikable especially in that last group of kids that we saw like there's i think it's fair to say that there's more to like out of this group than the, the freshman last group. class than the sophomore class yeah yeah right because mm-hmm. over here you have him talking about it and he's being vulnerable about the fact that he just feels insecure and sometimes it comes out in a way that in a way that teenagers act which is like instead of being the one being made fun of you just got to be the one making fun of whoever you're talking about Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. you need to be the one making fun of people not the one being made fun of yeah and it's it's like you said it's real teenage life it's a real thing that exists and happens like i don't think there are many teenagers with that level of self-awareness where they can actively pinpoint that behavior as a byproduct of their insecurity but it's definitely where that sort of stuff comes from have you, you ever know? seen that keen peel sketch about the bully no what, what what was that one what happened there <laughs> oh man that one's pretty hilarious because key plays a or no peel is the bully and um, every time uh, he he says something, you know, cruel and insulting to Key, he justifies it by admitting one of his crazy insecurities. Like he just gets like super deep into talking about like <laughs> how you know exactly like this kind of thing, where it's like the only reason I had to say that to you is because my father beats me or whatever. It's like, it, gets, it goes pretty dark, but it's like right. comedic, and so look it up later. 
yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no that's that's exactly what it is what it, what it kind of is right except not funny just vulnerable in this in this case mm-hmm. and the thing but i the like part about that is the, funny is when they go down the slide <laughs> yeah 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 well okay but i was gonna say that um the thing that i do like is that tashawi recognizes that this is a good group of kids uh there's there's things about them that he likes and it, it's it's a pretty stark difference from marcus in the previous year who who you know at the time was beefing with willie and he just had all these grievances and you know you watch as their friend group breaks up but these guys you know they're tough on each other but they like each other too and by the end of the mm-hmm. conversation, they they make their amends, and yeah, what happens next is they're at this they're at a McDonald's, and it's one of those McDonald's with a playground in it. So they go, all right, let's let's go down the slide before we go off. And Quan slides down first, and he notices that there's something sticky, and you see that when he looks at his pants and his hands, they're covered in poop. And Tashawi's about to come down, and Quan's like, hey, you know what would be really fun? If you came down head first. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah. This issue had some pretty funny potty humor, man. When they were inside the McDonald's, Helmut comes out of the bathroom and he's like, yeah, I destroyed their toilet. (laughs) Yeah, he was really proud of it, too. He's like... (laughs) Do you feel a secret pride when you clog a toilet? It feels as if you've done something bigger than any man expected you to. (laughs) (laughs) To him, it's the epic battle between man versus machine, and he intends to win it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Me personally, if it's my own toilet, I definitely don't want to mess it up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You don't want to be the one stuck with it. That sucks. (laughs) But if it's a McDonald's toilet, I guess it's okay. Uh, No. It's not okay. Don't, <laughs> you don't do that so? to your service workers. Don't do that to see you. They're just people trying to make a break, uh, you know, just trying to pay bills. I just thought <laughs> of something really naughty that happened when I was in college. What'd you I think do? it was like freshman year. It wasn't me, but it was my friend. We we were driving somewhere far away on a on a little road trip and we yeah. stopped off at like a Jack in the Box or some fast food joint. And it was already relatively late that night maybe it was like i don't know nine or ten like late enough where there weren't really any other people in the restaurant in the fast food restaurant um so we were the only ones there and then the there was a hallway on the side um you know out of view from the workers at the counter so we had finished ordering our we had finished eating and then uh we you know we still had a ways to drive, so uh, we all went to the bathroom. Not at the same time, obviously, but like, we made sure <laughs> okay. we had time to use the bathroom. Then when my last friend in the group, he went to the bathroom, he he left the door open, and he was like, "Hey guys, watch this!" <laughs> and he just he just urinated all over the floor and on top of the toilet seat. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Why? I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know why he did that. But we were like, okay, we gotta leave. <laughs> That's okay, sure. I have no 
I have no response to that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to this day, I, I really don't know why he did that. I mean, <laughs> at that young age, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, we all thought it was hilarious. But we also knew it was bad and wrong. So we quickly left as as fast as we could. And it was, you know, one of those rest stops in the middle of nowhere. So we were confident that we would never, ever go to that place ever again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that was pretty messed up yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's probably close to the same level of messed up as shooting a burrito from a slingshot into somebody's window yeah see you get it (laughs) yeah (laughs) hijinks (laughs) the only difference is that instead of being 15 we were probably like 19 (laughs) (laughs) definitely old enough to know better Eh, it's under 20. I'll give you a, I'll give you a break. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> You're my friend. Well, I'll, I was, I'll give you I a pass. <laughs> I didn't encourage him to do that. I didn't know he was going to do that. I was only a witness to it. <laughs> uh, okay. You, you just made it sound like you were, uh, you know, at, you you made it sound like you were one of those uh uh those military employees who 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 witnessed like a humanitarian like crime like take place crime. and you were just like yeah <laughs> and you were just like I did not condone it I was just following orders <laughs> it's like uh I didn't think it was that bad <laughs> oh man. Uh, all right. Did you, did you did you think it was too much of a coincidence for them to come across Marcus as soon as they arrived in Mexico? To be honest, yes, but it's not I don't think it was anything where it bugged me so much that I couldn't forgive it. But yeah, like going to this place and then accidentally running into him was a very wonder like i i had to go and flip through the pages to see like oh was there a scene that i missed where they got some sort of indicator of where he would be um i think i think at one point in the book they say something like oh saya told some people that this was a a place that she always wanted to visit or like you know uh a place that they raved about but that's yeah so still not quite yeah. the same Quan you know? read the diary or the journal and he knew that this was the city to look for marcus but yeah but still yeah, it's a big it's city still, i imagine it's a city exactly so it's like yeah. how what are the odds of just running into him like that yeah yeah i mean i suppose you could say it's one of those things where doesn't really matter that much because it's really more or i can i can afford to concentrate more on the i guess the more thematic aspects of the story rather than the the plot questions Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i do think this is still a pretty plot-centric story so it does still kind of matter it's it's not you know like an alan moore work where you know the 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 content of the 
the, the thematic content is so dense and fulfilling that I can completely ignore something like this because what's more important is uh, what's being said. Right. But yeah, it's uh, it's not great. <laughs> Maybe there'll be an explanation for that later. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I have another question for you. Sure. But what you got? Near the end of the issue, when Quan first spots Marcus and realizes that he's looking at Marcus, Quan pulls a weapon out of his back pocket. What is that? How would you describe it? It's a blackjack. Is that is that a blackjack? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's what they're called. That's it's. Uh, let me take a look. Because for a second, I, I thought it was like um, a sock yeah, full a of quarters. Jack. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. So it it fits with his like whole greaser ethos because I think that's a thing that you know comes from that time period. Okay. Yeah. That. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's, that's one of those weapons where I've I've heard of those. Like I've when you read like old stories that are set in like the fifties, like old crime stories like that's what yeah. the guys use when they knock people out but i i don't think i ever really thought about what they actually looked like yeah it's a black so when, when when kwan pulls it out of his pocket like my first thought was is he pulling out a sock filled up with quarters <laughs> he's just gonna use that. <laughs> that's what i thought <laughs> but you have educated me so thank you sir yeah what's what's that uh pulp uh detective um he was in the catwoman series Slam Bradley. Yeah, like it's it's like the yeah. type of thing that's that would be in a Slam Bradley story, right? Yeah, true Where that. It's true like that. I'm gonna go and investigate this, you know, this shady bar or something, and then suddenly he gets smacked in the back of the head with a blackjack. That that's that's where you would read something like that. Yeah. 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 Any other thoughts on that last chapter, um, you know, of them going on this big journey and then all of the all of these things converging in this single spot? Man, my one big thought from the end of this issue is that I actually think it would have been a more powerful cliffhanger if it had just ended with the panel of Quan looking at Marcus. When Marcus is on the phone. I can see that. Like, if that I, was just how it ended, I don't think I would have thought so hard about, wait, how did they just randomly come across yeah. each other? Because then you would end the story on, yeah. end the issue on the story beat with the, yeah. you know, that emotional moment because it's impactful, you know, because then you're just wondering, wait, what's going to happen next? But then yeah. they actually, you know, immediately show us what happens next. And what happens next is that, Saya, I mean, uh, Maria and Petra see each other and they embrace, and then that's when yeah. they raise a r little ruckus, and then Marcus comes out there and he sees them together. And Maria's like, Marcus, it's Petra, can you believe it? And he says, No, I really can't. <laughs> and like, that's yeah. kind of like the same reaction I have as a reader. I can't believe they actually just encountered each other in a grocery store or wherever this is. Yeah. Like just such a well, random place to find each other. 
I also think, I guess it depends on what would have happened next, right? Because I do think that if if the next part of the story becomes like this all-out fight between all of them, then ending that scene with him sneaking up on Marcus probably makes the most sense. But I do think that Reminder wanted to have the story turn into this thing where they need to be in a position where they're sitting and talking it out and eventually where they become friends with one another because, you know, spoilers for the next issue. That's kind of what happens is, um, you know, these kids that are for all intents and purposes, absolute strangers ex- with the exception of Petra and uh, Maria and Marcus, mm-hmm. uh, they need to have some sort of bonding moment. Right. Yeah. So I guess you can't just go straight from I'm going to club this guy in the back of the head to we're going to be friends. They, they needed to, <laughs> they needed to diverge from that path somehow. Right. That's, that's the only explanation that I could give. Makes sense. Yeah. But that being said, we can move on to issue 31. Mm-hmm. We go back to one day earlier and finally get to see the events of the infamous pep rally. After Zenzel's last encounter with Brandy, she has taken Brandy has taken it upon herself to get back at Zenzel, and with enough snooping, she's discovered Zenzel's secret and announced it in front of the whole school. It, it announced it in front of the whole school for the whole school to hear. Zenzel has been writing letters to her parents this whole year, but it turns out that her parents are dead, murdered by her. As Zenzel escapes in shame, all hell breaks loose. When Tashawi decks Victor, all hell breaks loose when Tashawi decks decks Victor. As chaos ensues, Helmet, Petra, and Tashawi jump into the fray. Cowering under a table is Quan, trying not to die. Petra throws a concoction at Brandy and hits Shabnam instead. He may be severely injured. The five break free in the present. The five break free and make a run for it. In the present, they are with Marcus, who is holding a gun to them. He is paranoid and for the right reasons. After some talk and the revelation that the freshmen are on Shabnam, Shabnam's bad side, Marcus decides that they're okay and lets down his guard. They all take ecstasy and connect with one another. Maria learns about the alleged fate of Saya. The combination of the drugs and the shock of this news has a pretty heavy effect on all the kids, and and the room becomes a hot and heavy makeout session as all the kids pair up. The only person who doesn't have someone is Quan, who sulks in a corner. Afterwards, Marcus goes to Quan to check up on him, and he unlocks all of Quan's feelings about being alone. Quan steps on steps out for a breather when he is confronted by Victor and Brandy. After learning that Marcus and Maria are in the room, he forces Quan to go back and betray them. Quan reluctantly goes back, leaving the door unlocked. The the door unlocked. 
As Quan returns to the room, Kenji's Yakuza forces also arrive on the scene. When Victor enters the room, the gang has made a break for it. Quan has warned them, but, they're, but they are running right into the hands of the Yakuza. As Victor prepares to snipe at them, Brandy lets out a scream. Marcus has killed her. And with, and with a sadistic smile on his face, he takes aim at Victor. Is Brandy dead? Well, that's true. There's a chance that she's probably alive too. So, uh, yeah, I'll give it that. Uh, you know, I, I will give it that. I, I, I've come to expect at this point that unless you actually see their body, there's a good chance that they're not. Uh, they have as much of a chance of being alive as they have of being dead. I mean, I we do see her body, and it looks like she suffered a stab wound. It's a pretty that, severe yeah. injury. Yeah. It, it, it's like if she doesn't get immediate medical attention in the next few seconds, she's probably not going to make it. And even if she does get medical attention, she still probably won't going to. She probably still won't make it. Yeah. At least that's how it looks. I'm not a doctor or anything. <laughs> yeah. For all I yeah. know, Marcus could have dodged all of her vital organs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've seen it work once before, so there's that. Um, let's talk about the pep rally. So this is something that they mm -hmm. were building up to for a while, and we finally get to see what happens at it uh, on, on the day of the pep rally. And we, we not only learn that, but we learn a big part of Zenzel's backstory too, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm not entirely sure if I believe that backstory either. Because, yeah, uh, so um, one of the running one of the running uh, images of Zenzel is that we see her constantly writing these letters to her parents. And this reveal from Brandy, who has I'm I'm assuming that she's used Shabnam's resources for this, but um, you know, she's done her homework. She's investigated Zenzel after, you know, being deconstructed in the locker room, and she decides, okay, I need something to get back at this girl because I'm a petty asshole. Mm -hmm. So she decides to do some research, and she discovers, oh, her parents are actually dead, and she Zenzel is the one who murdered them, which. Zenzel takes great shame in. It's obvious that this is something that shames her. And she makes a run for it. So, But I'm still... I don't know if I'm convinced that that's the real story. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Uh, you brought up a good point. I think there is a chance that Brandy could be telling the truth. Yeah. And the the reasons for that are because in the previous i guess the main reason or if, i guess if i were to submit some kind of evidence in favor of the argument that brandy's telling the truth it's because in the previous issue at the beginning of that issue when they're at the gas station um you see zen it starts off with zenzel writing a letter like she normally does 
and then she says that she's gonna mail it and you do see her drop it off drop off a letter in a mailbox but then oh. as the car um drives off you see a bunch of pieces of paper just flying out of the window and i'm not sure if that's supposed to indicate that there are letters that Zenzel writes that she doesn't send. Hmm. But on the other hand, if we're looking at Brandy's words as a lie, then the fact that Zenzel actually puts, we see her put a letter in the mailbox seems to refute that either that or yeah. she's like, who is she sending that letter to? You know, like she's still, yeah. Like from from this from the story and what we're privy to, um, unless you know there's some kind of narrative trick that's just meant to deceive us, it seems like she in the previous issue she writes a letter to her mother and father and then puts it in an envelope and then puts that envelope in a mailbox. So we don't necessarily know who she's sending it to, like what address is on it, if yeah, it's actually yeah. um if if her parents are actually alive so i don't know but i, I feel like, like with the with the reaction that zenzel like the reaction we see from her in, in this issue in this final issue it seems like she's pretty upset by this information being revealed and whether she's upset because it's a lie or because it's true i guess we haven't confirmed it one way or the other yet yeah. What do yeah. you think? You think it's true or do you think Brandy's just messing with her? I mean, I think there's probably some truth to it because you're right. When she announces it to the student body, like she does respond in a way that indicates that this is not something that she's proud of. But I don't know, there's still something kind of weird to it i wonder if it's a half truth of sorts you know yeah yeah like you think that zenzel like if she did murder her parents like brandy said who do you think she's writing those letters to exactly see there's it's just more teasing on remender's remender's part to just keep us invested in the mystery of this girl and and you know it's it's a good thing that he doesn't decide to just give us everything all at once he he really wants us to work for the 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 answer to this mystery so mm -hmm. yeah because like that stack of papers that brandy pulls out of her bag as all the unsent letters like we only have brandy's word exactly exactly that's the thing that was the thing that really made me question it because even even so there she she it didn't feel like she gave us any real evidence of what she had found right it just mm -hmm. she just said oh these are the letters and this is why but she didn't really give any concrete evidence as to whether her parent like you know what's the proof that her parents are actually dead other than mm -hmm. you just saying it Mm-hmm. Right. So so there's that. Um yeah, but then we see what actually happened at the day of the event 
And, you know, as more evidence of just, I think my growing appreciation for Tisawi though, is as Zenzel tries to run away, you know, uh, as she's overcome with emotion, Victor gets in her way. And it's kind of funny what he says, though, where he goes, where do you go? And he says, pep rally is not finished. You put your hands on. Oh, no, he goes, uh, pep rally is not finished. And then no one leaves until they are gleeful. <laughs> That's the part that kind of made me chuckle. <laughs> so he's he's like grabbing her and he's like forcing her to stay there. And then all of a sudden, Tosawi comes out of nowhere and just smacks him with his skateboard. And that's a moment where, if we go back to that earlier conversation where Tosawi is talking about, you know, what makes a real friend. You know, this is, I'm not saying that Helmet or Petra wouldn't have been the first one to do that, but it says something that Tosawi was the first one to do that. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Like for for a guy that up to this point has been kind of unpleasant, it's it's the first sign of there being a decent dude under here. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. It also and, kind of feels like hitting somebody that hard with a skateboard should really mess them up. <laughs> Victor's a beast though. Victor is uh like i want to say like three issues three volumes back i thought he was dead because they because billy came up with that contraption that like smashed into him oh yeah that's right and i was like oh okay i guess victor's dead and then not only was he not dead he wasn't crippled because i was like when that thing hit him in the back it was like a dumpster or something so i assumed (laughs) that oh so i guess he's crippled now (laughs) But the no. people in Deadly Class have a lot of durability. Victor has definitely has a lot of durability. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to talk about this page too, where you're watching as just how he hits Victor with the skateboard and it just gets chaotic because the panels are just going in every direction at this point. And when you're watching it, mm-hmm. and then you just see just mayhem as the kids in the bleachers are just going nuts and then you see helmet jumps into it and he's just punching a whole bunch of people and there's this one panel where you see brandy and shabnam right there and they're just laughing their asses off and it's a really small panel but it just really goes to yeah really drives home the fact that they're just bastards (laughs) yeah and then Beneath that, you have this panel where Quan is just hiding under the desk. He's not doing anything. And to, and next to it is an even smaller panel where Tosawi is, you know, he's he's obviously like grappling with some people or something. And out of the corner, out of the corner of his eye, he sees Quan there, and he knows that this guy's just hiding out. Coward. Exactly. And then at the very bottom of all this chaos, there's this one triangular panel that cuts across the bottom. And it's all the, it's Master Lin and all the teachers. And they're just sitting there. And Master Lin is saying, observe and grade them. <laughs> it's pretty insane. And um, and then there's the scene where Shabna, uh, where 
uh, Petra pulls out one of her poisons and she throws it. She just, it's not even a thing where she throws the bottle. She takes off the lid and she just tosses the liquid, which that doesn't seem safe for anyone. Like, I don't know how she intended to aim that, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Like, maybe if she had taken off the cap, poured it into a cup, and then threw the contents of the cup at a specific (laughs) person, I can be like, okay, you've got a good chance of aiming it. But she literally is just taking the nozzle of the bottle and just trying to splash people with it. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty chaotic. It's really chaotic, and it's no wonder that she misses Brandy altogether, and then all you see is some stuff hit Shabnam in the face, and you hear him go, it burns my eyes, and that's that's all you really see for from him for the rest of the, the issue. So if he's alive, you know he's vindictive, but on the other hand, he might be more weak than ever, too. He might be looking like Two-Face. He might be looking like Two-Face, or if he's absolutely blind, there's a chance that his position on the student council is just more tenuous than it's ever been. Because mm-hmm. he, he was already kind of delicate before this. He was just holding on by a thread before all this. And if he's blind or something now, uh, I just find it hard weakness. to imagine. Exactly. So it'll be I'm I'm curious to see what happens to Shabnam after this. Yeah, same here. Yeah. And then you just see the five of them make a break for it. It's I don't know, it's kind of inspiring. Again, going back to the idea that I didn't really like the 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 sophomore class quite as much, but these kids watching them stick together like this, there's you know, it's kind of corny, but it makes you believe in the power of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's something we should all cling to in these dark times, man. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Have you ever seen, either in your own personal experience or in some other kind of story, have you ever seen, I don't know, I guess some popular kid humiliate some other kid in front of everybody. Oh man. I feel like that that's a trope that happens quite fairly frequently. Like the the biggest example that I can think of of that is something like Carrie. You remember Carrie? The horror movie? Yeah. I I don't remember. I don't think I actually watched it. What happened? Well, one of the most famous scenes in Carrie, like one of the most iconic scenes in Carrie is um the popular girls get one of the popular guys to ask her to the school dance. And it's all part of this elaborate ruse to uh, basically get her to win homecoming queen or something like that. And when she's on stage and receiving her award, they douse her with a bucket of pig's blood and embarrass her in front of the entire student body. But do you know anything about Carrie? Nope. Never oh. actually watched it. Do you care? <laughs> you can spoil it. Okay. Spoilers for Carrie. So, um, this is a movie from the seventies, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's all it's good, also, man. 
it's also a Stephen King book. It's actually a Stephen King book first, but um, the thing about it is she, so it's about her. It's one of those stories where a young woman develops these powers, but it's also kind of an allegory for, you know, womanhood, uh-huh. like for, you know, uh, her change, her changing teenage body or whatever. So, um, so the thing about it is she has like a form of telekinesis or something like that. And she is just generally regarded as a weirdo and as a freak by all the other kids at the school. And when she, when they play this prank on her, she basically just loses control of her powers and her telekinesis just goes wild. And she, from what I remember, locks all the kids in the auditorium and just starts a huge fire and burns it all down with everybody inside. Oh, okay. Yeah. I believe that's how it ends. Or not ends, but that's that's how that sequence ends. I see. But yeah. Have you are do did you not have like a example? Like have you not thought of an example of something like this happening? I don't have anything off the top of my head. I would really have to think about all the various bits of teenage media I've consumed over the decades. I mean, I do think generally speaking, like there's definitely a less vicious version of that that happens in high school when kids are just, again, like Tosawi was saying, like everyone's just kind of insecure. So people just kind of pick on each other and you know people try to score points right uh in order to look popular or whatever so like i do yeah. think that's some version of that does happen maybe not to the degree where someone goes on stage and reveals your deepest darkest secrets to the entirety of the school but you know on on micros on a mi- on a substantially more micro scale that does happen yeah yeah that's true yeah. i definitely knew a lot of people in high school who would put down other kids to make themselves feel good but to me it just made them look like jerks you know or i mean they were definitely jerks and i didn't like yeah. them yeah yeah but uh yeah i mean there were a lot of people i didn't like so <laughs> I guess that's the high school experience for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It 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 really is. It really is. You know? Um <laughs> sorry. He he just forced me to reminisce a little bit. <laughs> uh, You're having flashbacks to the darkest <laughs> periods of your life. <laughs> yeah teenager your teenage years yeah i mean i the way that i think about high school is um there's that scene from kick ass written by mark miller Mm -hmm. where he talks about uh uh the main kid talks about how you know he's just an average kid he doesn't really get bullied he's not he's not popular but he's not unpopular either you know he's just an average normal basic kid and i i do think that that's an experience that 
basically sums up my high school which is like yeah i don't think i was like any more or less of a victim than anybody else but it was just you know high school is just kind of a cool place some some days you take crap some days you don't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah anyways enough of uh therapy <laughs> <laughs> our, our therapy hour that's not what this podcast is about um yeah after that uh marcus holds a gun to their heads and you know he obviously thinks that this there's something bizarre about the about how uh he's suspicious coincidental how coincidental this all is right Mm -hmm. so he's holding a gun to their head and I'd, I'd say fairly quickly he learns to make peace with them. <laughs> like, again, this is kind of like the Petra and Helmet relationship where maybe it's a little fast, but I do think that the exchange and the dialogue is convincing enough where I can be, where I can tell myself, you know what? Okay, I can see these people learning to get along with one another given their circumstances. He's slow to trust the freshman until he hears that Petra messed up Shabnam, and then he's like, oh, you heard yeah. him? Okay, we can be friends. We're buddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, after that, and, and what better way to speed up a budding friendship than to infuse ecstasy into the situation because <laughs> after that they just take a bunch of drugs and like just trip out like mad um i do think those scenes are pretty beautiful to look at those pages where they begin to trip out and there's this one page um page 110 where yeah at the very top you're seeing I guess everybody in the room is they're just give, groove into the music and it's uh, uh, the lyrics are, I'll give you candy, give you diamonds, give you pills, give you anything you want, $100 bills. And then on the bottom scene, you see Marcus and Maria and they're just putting their hands all over, over each other. It, it It's broken up into three panels and it looks like it's all one image, but then you realize their hands are just all over the place. So it gives the illusion of momentum and motion as well. Um, there's also all this, all these really vibrant colors and waves that are going on at the same time that really, really captures the idea of being on ecstasy. You know? I'll have to take your word for it. I'll have to take somebody's word for it. <laughs> This is not an admission of anything on my part. <laughs> I I watch a lot of movies and I'm going to have to assume that they have people that do research and who know how these things work. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I think the effect of just all the wavy lines and the colors and um you know just the sense of the hypnotic motion of the hands they they all 
combine to uh, I think like I said pretty give you an idea of what being on ecstasy could be like I imagine so I've been told <laughs> you imagine yes I've, I've yes. yeah <laughs> I have to emphasize that <laughs> yes to any governmental agencies that might be listening <laughs> let me be clear uh <laughs> actually there's this one page uh page 111 right after the page you described with marcus and maria uh uh-huh. that that page made me laugh too because tosawi like <laughs> takes his <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a great scene but please finish finish <laughs> No, I mean there isn't really anything more to it. There's no, there's nothing to it other than the fact that he he just takes his nutsack out and he starts rocking out to the music, and it's just it's, so bizarre. It's like, hilarious because it's two panels. Yeah, right at the very top, and in the first panel, you know, talk about you want to get nuts. He <laughs> let's goes, get nuts. let's get nuts tonight. <laughs> and the funny thing is, you just see it. It's it's a it's a camera angle from from the back, right? So you don't see his back, but you see these two hairy balls from the top, and you see everybody looking at him from the front. And it's it's the thing that kills me is the little the design of the little hairy like the yeah. little bits of hair that are coming off it, you know? Yeah, that, that, that puts it over the top. Yeah, that's great comedy right there. <laughs> So they're just looking at him, and then in the next panel, he's just like banging his head, but you see that his nuts are out, but they're really tiny because it's a really small panel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Helmet's like, cover those filthy giblets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, so after Maria and Marcus just end up in this makeout session, Petra and Helmet get into it and even Tasawi and uh Zenzel like she's not about sex per se or or you know she's she's holding back from it I guess because of whatever her I, I imagine her personal beliefs are but she imbibes in ecstasy with Tasawi nonetheless even though she she initially pressure us yeah she initially said she's not going to do it but she does it anyways and i do think it's kind of tender because it's a moment that they share with each other i mean yeah granted it still becomes just making out but like the scene of them just sitting with each other and being close is it's a pretty tender moment you know between these two people that for the last couple of issues we've seen them kind of growing close together Mm mm-hmm and then I love how on page 113, which follows that, after everybody's paired up right at the bottom, you see Quan there and <laughs> you see everybody's making out and he's just like, uh, and then all the way in the very smallest right corner, it's just like, just fucking perfect. Story of yeah. my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then... um. But it leads into something that is actually 
I don't have the greatest love for Quan up to this point, but I will say page 115 for me is something that I don't know. I felt I felt something for him, right? Yeah. Because at this point, Marcus comes up to him, and uh, he he had just finished this anecdote about mice and how they conducted this study. And this is actually a real study. I've actually heard about this study before. But uh, they conducted this study about mice where there were there was water that was infused with cocaine and there were these mice that were around. And when the mice were left on their own or isolated, they would drink this cocaine-infused water and become addicted to it. But when the mice were separate, uh, were a part of a larger group, a community, then all of a sudden the desire for this cocaine water just evaporated, you know. Mm. But yeah, that that's actually based on a real study that exists. So Marcus has just finished telling Quan this story, um, and then he proceeds to talk to him. He goes, uh. Are they the coolest kind of mice? When given the option of cocaine water or regular water, they get addicted to the cocaine every time. And then he goes, but add more mice and guess what happens? The mice ignore the drugs. They just stop going to the cocaine water. Why? They're happy. They suddenly have friends and social shit to do. That's the thing, man. It's not the drugs you've got to worry about. It's the cage. And then while you're watching this, you're watching a close-up. It's three four five six. it's six panels and you're watching kwan and it's just becoming more and more of a close-up of his face and as it gets closer his face just becomes more it just it just shows more agony you know yeah it's just it him blending dealing, with the shadows exactly it's him dealing with the idea of this loneliness and then page 116 he goes for some of us the cage is easier None of these people know me. Not really. I never found my tribe. Never found people who get me. People who understand how hard it is. How hard it all is for me. Got used to being alone. Safer at least. Won't ha- won't have to face the heartbreak of losing anyone I love. Never had someone to begin with. And Marcus, just in the throes of ecstasy, just hugs him and he's like, come here. Look at, look. It might feel like you're on the outside while everyone's having a great time, but we're all just like you. We all need a family who know and love us. We all feel like outsiders most of the time. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, you're not alone, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like it's, It was something that did make me feel for Quan, And he's like crying, crying genuine tears at the thought of this too. So it's not an act. Yeah. But there's definitely some striking moments in Deadly Class where we get these genuine I guess I'd say yeah, outpourings of unfiltered emotion, like maybe you would you could even say sentimentality, but there's just something genuine about it that that points you towards life. It's it's almost like the story is telling you even if things are hard right now, there's somebody out there for you, you know, like you're not alone. There's something in this kind of writing that I do think is quite affecting and elevates what's just 
an entertaining story into something that has something to say you know like it's a great story not just it's not just a plot delivery device but this is a story that actually has a message to communicate mm-hmm. i mean i do think that this is also the point where Quan has a little bit of that redemption arc um, mm-hmm. We do mention that later on when confronted with Victor and Brandy and they're forcing him to betray his friends, he does end up warning them and giving them the chance to get out of there. Granted, all the things that are coming for them, including Kenji and the Yakuza at this point, all these things are a result of things that actions that he's taken so i don't know if it's the kind of redemption that i could really forgive a guy for because <laughs> <laughs> i guess it depends how intact all... everybody comes out after this yeah yeah exactly it i will say one thing though when when i think about kwan prior to this moment where he has you know he's watching everybody make out and you know he has this epiphany right he for the most part up to this point he's acting really tough and he's talking about how he doesn't really need anyone and um you know how he's a lone wolf or whatever (laughs) (laughs) it just reminded me of that story you told me about how you went to a wedding and there was this guy there who was just (laughs) the most kind of oblivious doofus that you could ever (laughs) that you could meet (laughs) And you were talking to him, and I forget what the context was, but I think the guy was like, yep, I never got married. I'm too much of a lone wolf. Yep, exactly. (laughs) He just started talking about his life, and he started saying how he couldn't get into a a long-term relationship because he was too much of a lone wolf because he had that Texas mindset, you know? He was too independent. Yeah, and it's just kind of – it's a moment where you're just like, dude – Shut up. <laughs> just, <laughs> Pretty much. Just shut up, man. Just <laughs> shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> I wasn't at that wedding with you, but I kind of wish I'd been there just to like observe this guy. <laughs> I wish everybody could have met him. And yeah, man, that that was a really draining wedding because I sat directly across from him at the dinner and I wanted to talk to the people around me, but this guy, like everybody else, I think had their fill of him pretty quickly and were able to like talk to the people next to them. Yeah. Or the people directly across from them. So they didn't have to, you know, make eye contact with him. But because this guy was sitting directly across from me, I had really had no choice. I couldn't escape the people directly next to me. And, and diagonally from me, they were already engaged in their own side conversations and yeah. there was just no way for me to break into them. So I had to talk to this one dude and it was mostly <laughs> him talking at me and it yeah. was, it was pretty annoying. Yeah. He, he strikes me as the kind of guy who thinks he's the life of the party when oh, really, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. When really he's just the most painful kind of cringe it was pretty cringified yeah <laughs> you know just i can't i can't with you 
<laughs> uh, Man, I'm glad you remember that story. Yeah. It, it was the first thing I thought of when I was watching Quan do his whole lone wolf <laughs> shtick. I was like, ugh. You know, just another thing, another thing to annoy me about Quan at this point. <laughs> but, yeah. I, but again, don't get me wrong, like, once he gets past that shtick and when, when he allows himself to be really vulnerable, it's like, oh, okay. Like, I find this version of you more sympathetic, more empathetic, someone that I can relate to, someone that I could even talk to, right? Yeah. Why can't you have the self-awareness to be this person? Yeah. Why can't you be this person all the time? Or why isn't this the real you? Yeah. Yeah. Right? There's a funny panel on page 119, right after Quan returns from his encounter with Victor and Brandy. He returns to the, to the room where the team is, or the other teens are partying. And then we quickly cut to a scene in the parking lot, and the, there's a car in the parking lot with Kenji's goons. Did you think that that one guy in the car, like there's a guy in the front seat, he... He reminded me of one of the members of the mutant gang from the yeah. Dark Knight Returns. I didn't notice it until you brought it up, but when I was looking at it, I was like, they all kind of have a similar look. Um, well, not not all of them. The, the one guy with spikes definitely looks like one of the mutants. Yeah, but, the red visor. Yeah, but the fact that they have these weird visor things was totally a throwback to that dark knight returns uh you it know, makes it feel like the 80s for sure future aesthetic mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah and then when they come out of the car a bunch of them not all of them but a bunch of them have spikes and stuff on their clothing it's yeah a funny fashion choice yeah i mean i would also say that the knot top on this guy also kind of reminds me of um Watchmen, the the weird looking gangsters from Watchmen. Oh yeah, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that's nearly as intentional. Like I think the visor and the spikes on the one dude is more of an overt, like homage to Dark Knight Returns. Whereas yeah. the dude with the ponytail thing is, I think that's just more coincidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now, the cliffhanger at the end of this issue is a pretty great one. Do yeah. you think Marcus will kill Victor in the next issue? Oh, man. That's a good question. That's the thing, right? Like, if you stop and think about it, there's a bunch of different ways that this story can end up. Like, I, I you know what? I think the final boss of Deadly Class is going to have to be Master Lin. So... Yeah. If that's the case, then Victor is at best a sub boss or mid boss. Like he's not a mini boss. I, I'd say he's probably like level one boss. So yeah, I can see him getting aced. Okay. Okay. We yeah. are halfway through the series or a little bit more, I guess, because I think the series was 56 issues. Yeah. Uh well, there are two more hardcovers coming out, so 
this this particular volume ends the first or the second hardcover. So I guess that's halfway in a in a sense, right? Oh, I thought the I thought there was only one hardcover coming out left. One more. Yeah, one more. But but this oh, okay. this volume ends out the second hardcover. So there's a one more hardcover after this to read. That's the third one. And then the fourth hardcover is still yet to come out. Oh, okay. That's what you meant. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that being the case, um, yeah, I imagine... I don't know if Shabnam's going to be... You know, if we're going to talk about this in terms of, like, video games or whatever, but <laughs> I don't know if Shabnam's necessarily going to be the the, you know, second boss, the, you know, the lieutenant boss or whatever. Mm-hmm, but... Mm-hmm. I yeah, I have a feeling it's gonna be either him or uh Grogda. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. For all we know, there could be other characters yet to be introduced who will take on yeah, the villain that's role. True too. That's true too. Uh what if it ends up being Polly or something? <laughs> Polly <laughs> is the final boss. <laughs> all this time you thought he was just a hanger on but he's actually been scheming and plotting yeah you thought he was just a red shirt guy but you know he's he's the mastermind baby <laughs> <laughs> all right anything else nope i'm looking forward to the next volume man i'm looking forward to volume seven same here it's gonna be a good time out mm-hmm all right well if nothing else then you know if there's anything that anyone would like to contribute to the conversation we would love to hear from you you can hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can dm us slide into them dms slide into them dms slide into them like a slider um <laughs> I don't know what I'm I don't know what I'm doing. But yeah, feel free to hit us up there. Uh you know, at between the gutters on Instagram or you can tweet at us at between the gutters. Um yeah, if you are listening to us on a platform, please rate our podcast or our episode with uh you know, the highest score you think we deserve uh and you know, subscribe and like and that would help us get out to more people. That's right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Next week, we'll do an autopsy on the new Spider-Man movie, Across the Spider-Verse. came out a week or two ago, but we'll talk about it in our coming episode. So stay tuned for that. We'll catch you then. Peace out. Bye, everyone.
Disappointed! <laughs> That's the real multiverse right there. <laughs> I forget. Did you ever watch Hercules when you were a kid? Or a teen? Or whatever? I did not. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure I watched a few random episodes here and there. Just because it was uh -huh. on TV. But I can't uh -huh. say I ever actually watched it. Okay, okay. Did you follow okay. it? Uh, my brother watched it all the time, so I, I caught more of it than I probably needed to. I see. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that and Xena Warrior Princess were on TV a lot when we were kids, so I, I think I would, you know, watch for a few minutes here and there if they happened to be on when I turned on the TV, but I never actually followed the show in the sense of trying to watch every episode to follow the story. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I want to say that it just, they were the kinds of shows that popped up at a period of time in my life where I didn't really have anything going on. Like, I think all the, all the Star Trek stuff might have been winding down or, well, that's not true. I think they were on at the same time, but it was just like, I didn't really have much of anything else going for me. So I was, I was like, okay, I'll just watch it. <laughs> yeah. So you actually watched them from beginning to end like you followed the story i wouldn't say that i followed, followed it like super closely um i think well like what ended up happening i think what ended up happening was like i said because my brother would watch it so it would just be on at a bunch of random times and then i do think one of the seasons in particular caught my attention and the rest of it was kind of whatever, but that one season, watching that one season, uh, like I think it might have been the second to last season. I was like, oh, okay. Because uh, it was about him, Hercules, going to other foreign lands to meet, you know, other mythological deities. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there was that. I see, I see. Yeah. Yep. Oh shoot. Let me close this out. 